Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Tim, how are you brother? Oh good, thanks Chris, lovely to be here mate, yeah lovely. Yes. Now we've got to pretend like we haven't been talking for the last hour. <laughs> You've ruined everything. <laughs> Our secret is out. Yeah, exactly. My gosh. Well, again, I'm so lucky doing what I do, Tim. You know, I really get to chat. Not just to the most fascinating people on the planet, but all the people that if I have my choice in life, who am I going to chat to today? It's going to be people like yourself. So thank you so much for um coming and sharing your wisdom and your experience fighter pilot how how did that come about you know it's interesting because um i was actually a bomber pilot now when you say you're a bomber pilot to a civilian community of course they don't understand what that is because they've seen top gun and you know i get it um but i was uh, a tornado gl4 pilot which is the aircraft you can see just on the back over here there uh, and that happened because uh as i think we said previously um before he came on air here father was in the military father's father father's father's father so i ended up going into the military i lived in portsmouth it was a naval town i went through the traditional things of cubs air cadets i went to university officer training corps which was um, obviously an army-based um, organization for people at university. And then I came out of that and I joined the Navy to fly. The reason I joined the Navy and not the Air Force to fly was because I had people within the University Air Squadron. I was in the Officer Training Corps and I came from a naval background and I just liked the idea of naval aviation. It just so happened that after five years of training, the Sea Harrier that I was due to go on and fly because I was streamed onto military fast jets that was decommissioned back in about 2003. And there were about nine of us at the time in Royal Air Force flying training, which everyone, all the three services go through training that's provided to, uh, by, the Royal, by the Royal Air Force. That's what they do. And the Royal Air Force turned around and said, well, look, you guys haven't got a job anymore. Well, you've got to go and start flying helicopters and go back to the beginning of your training. Do you want to come across to us? And we'll put you on, um, on, a, on a Royal Air Force fast jet. So we, we did. But uh, yeah, strange how we end up in these things, isn't it, really? God, so you started in the Navy and ended up in the RAF. That's right, yeah. And, yeah. And, and for anyone with a love of flying, that's that's just an easy decision to make, isn't it? It's not. It's more about the love of flying than what kind of what uniform you're wearing, right? Well, I would have stayed. I, I, I look back on the Navy now. I follow the Navy closely on social media. Um, I really like what the Navy does with social media. I like the Navy does what, what the Navy does with its people as well, which is different to what the Royal Air Force does with its people and, and how it communicates to them. The person that took me across from the Navy to the Air Force was a guy called Mike Wigston. And Mike Wigston now is the chief of air staff. He's the most senior guy in the Royal Air Force at the moment. And it just so happened that he was a squadron leader at the time. I was a young flight lieutenant. He phones me up. He says, Tim, the Sea Harrier is, 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 is gone. You've got nothing to fly. Uh, the Navy are going to put all nine of you back through helicopter training. It's going to take you another three years. Um, I can give you a jet in the Air Force if you want to come across. Let me know by the end of the week. Um, so we did. We said, well, that's great. And, I, and then in the, the thing is then, Chris, I went to Lossiemouth because I asked to go and fly tornadoes. And I ended up being on his squadron. He ended up being a squadron commander. 
having just brought me across and ended up going on to 12 squadron. And uh, so the chief of air staff was my boss for a good couple of years. He's a very good man, actually. And I went out to um, Iraq underneath him, uh, in fact. So, but yeah, I'm a big fan of the Navy, massive fan of the Navy, always have been. Uh, Royal Marines as well also, which is one of the reasons I agreed to come on your, your podcast here because I knew what kind of guy you were going to be. Um, so, uh, and I knew you're going to be an honest and straight, straight talking guy, which you are, of course. And so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of the Naval service. Yeah. I follow the, um, first sea Lord, um, all these guys on, on social. I'm a, I'm a big fan of them. Yeah. Let's, um, go back then because I, um, I don't know if you're aware, but I'm a pilot. Yes, I am aware. (laughs) (laughs) I am aware. Yeah. I, I bandy that one around a lot. <laughs> you got to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I dine out on that one, I should say. Brilliant. No, but seriously, I did my test in America. So I, the license, if you do it in America under the Federal Aviation Authority, yeah. Yeah. as opposed to the, CIA. Civil, the Aviation. Civil Aviation Authority in the UK, is that my license is for life. So I don't have to like reset the, the test if I haven't flown for three years or whatever, whatever the... The, um, the the regulations are now. Somebody feel free to put that in the comments. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so if I went to say America next week, I just show my license at a flight school. Say, could I take that plane? They'll say, yeah. Could you do a check test with us so we can see that you remember? You know, you you yeah, yeah. know the protocol and the, and you're safe. And then I can take go flying for a week, right? So from that aspect, I'm interested to know. How did you, when did you first step in a plane? What, what was that evolution? So I was lucky back in the day when the air cadets were doing a lot more flying than they are now. It was called the Air Training Corps back then. Um, I joined when I was about 13 years old. And my first flying was in Chipmunks, which the, the little, did that happen in Chipmunk with the cartridge starter? And that's how we all learned to fly is we sat in the back of this thing and moved things around. And it was all very noisy and everything smelled of fuel, you know. And it, you become sensitized to it. You, know, you understand it and it becomes a thing. Uh, and as the ground falls away, as you well know, you're like, oh. And it, some people get that and some people don't. But I've flown many people in jets uh, who really haven't flown in jets before and they've been unaroused by it. I get it. It's fine. But for me, every time I got airborne, obviously you're working hard in, in, the, in the jets and normally getting airborne is a formation or something. But <clears throat> I remember whenever I used to fly in the, in the, the little aircraft that, you know, you fly in and I still fly now, um, the ground falling away, it's always that kind of experience, isn't it? Of, oh, we're flying. It's, it's something magical. So we did a lot of gliding. I did a, a gliding thing. I went solo in a glider when I was 15, I think it was. And then I applied for a Royal Air Force flying scholarship, which I didn't get. Um, but I, I got, <clears throat> I applied for a sixth form scholarship. Sorry, I got the flying scholarship, which was 30 hours. And I flew at a place called Kidlington on a PA-28 Warrior, a little piper. And uh, I did 30 hours in that. And that was really my formalized approach to flying. But one thing I do talk to young people about, Chris, is people that want to get into aviation. I say, look, this can be free. It doesn't have to cost you. What you need to do is you need to go to a flight school. This is what I did when I was young. There was a flight school in Chichester. I used to cycle there on my bike. And what I did is I washed their aircraft without them even realizing it for three months. I took my own buckets and my sponges and got some water there. And I'd go up to the airplanes at the beginning of the day that were just being wheeled out the hangar. And I start washing them. And everyone thought I worked for the company. I'd never spoken to anyone in the company at all. I was about 14 years old. And I washed all the aircraft and I dried them. And a pilot would come out and he'd say, oh, thanks so much. Um, 
I'll bring it back. And if you could just do that one over there. Oh yeah, of course I will. And I do that one as well. I did this without speaking to anyone like in the management for about three months before someone came out and they said, who pays you for doing this? And I said, no one pays me. And they said, well, what are you doing cleaning our airplane? I, I said, well, I'm hoping that one day you'll, you'll say that I can go flying with you. And they said, you can go flying right now. And from then on, uh, I'd wash their aircraft and they'd fly me at the end of the day and I'd fly for an hour. And that's how I kind of learned before I even had, you know, before any military stuff, I was with the Air Training Corps, but I just, so I did that. And, uh, and that's what I tell people. It's like that for me was um, like an internship, if you see what I mean. You do realize when they make your Hollywood blockbuster, Tim, that is going to be <laughs> the most brilliant start to a film. <laughs> I used to cycle there on my bike along the lanes with this bucket. And it used to take me like 45 minutes or almost an hour. And this bucket and a sponge and all this kind of stuff in this thing. I cycle. Um, yeah, I used to love that. That, that was, that's getting hands on aircraft. You know, I think a lot of people don't, it's not a physical thing anymore. You just get into an airplane, you go on holiday. But when you are washing, it's like when you wash your car, you, you see the dents and you, you know what I mean? You think, oh, that bit's getting a bit rusty. If you go through a car wash, you, you don't get that. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. That's, you know, the magical summers back when I was like 14. So that's how I kind of got into it. My, my parallel experience is I washed cars to buy a Swiss army knife. <laughs> Oh, that's excellent. Seriously, did you really? I saw one in, I saw this black Swiss army and I've always loved knives, right? I had my first knife when I was about five. My, yeah. my grandmother bought me, my, my son, he had his first pocket knife when he was one. So now, now that he's five, he's quite, he, he's, he's got, he's moved on to the axe now, right? Obviously. <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know. We, 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 all, but so when I first saw a Swiss Army knife and I, I think I had my first red one and then I realized you can get black ones, which just looks so cool. And there was one in the, the, the window of our petrol station. Right. So that was it out with a bucket and a sponge door to door. Excuse me. Would you like your car washed? No sales tactics. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm seven years old or whatever. Oh, Sonny. Yeah. It's over there. And, I probably left those cars in more of a shit state than they actually yeah. were when, <laughs> but, yeah, but these imagine. people were, were kind enough to give me 50 P a car and, yeah. and the knife was about five pounds or something. So eventually I got, got that knife. Um, That's brilliant. So, so did you ever fly solo in the chipmunk, Tim? No, no, that was all just cadet stuff. Yeah, that was all cadet stuff. Um, they're, they're still they're flying now more than they were now. The cadets. I get. I I I do a lot of um, talking at cadet units. I try and not do as much anymore because it takes up so much time. I'm sure you probably get this as well. Unfortunately, um, I've had another offer for a Glasgow squadron recently. I might have turned it down, but they they do fly more now. Back then, though, you didn't solo in the um, in the chipmunk as a cadet. You were you were flown aerobatics, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it was mainly gliding we did, but now the cadets use the Grob Tutor. I don't think they solo as cadets either anymore. Am I right in thinking that? They do on the Air Squadron, of course, but not as I should just point out, I don't fly, Tim, just just for the record. I, I, I'm i one of these people, I love to make my dreams come true. I just love it, and I wanted to be a... I, I, I don't even know if I wanted to be a pilot, but I wanted to fly. And if you're going to fly, well, getting your PPL, your private, that that's kind of a a nice marker you know that means you've done the basics and you can yeah. fly an aircraft on your own so that's that's what i did when i came back to the uk and realized the extortionate cost that's ridiculous it, it's awful yeah. you know i've never really earned other than when i was a substance misuse specialist 
yeah never earned more than like ten thousand pound a year yeah even to even honestly to this day that's been the, the case it's it's obviously going to change now that i've started my youtube channel um the reason i'm saying this is for people watching i've achieved all of my dreams every everything i've ever wanted to do less than ten thousand pound a year bar that's right bar being a substance misuse specialist they paid me 27 grand a year and i spent that on learning to dry suit dive so i could go on an expedition to antarctica right anyway yeah. I, i'm digressing the thing was i didn't have a massive i would like to have come back to the uk and flown of course i would because it's a great experience but i wasn't going to pay you know 150 quid for 40 minutes or whatever it it, mm. it, it, it to me until i like got comfy in life that that would just be extravagant um sorry i digress the so how many hours did you fly before you went solo i've got the log books over there actually chris i think over here somewhere um just roughly because i think for me it was about i think i did 15 hours or something yeah that figure 10 to 12 is normally the standard i don't fly now by the way i will there's an airfield 20 minutes walk from my um, my house. I live in Ledbury, it's a grass strip. So my wife and I will eventually, when we're rich and famous, obviously when our, when our YouTube channels kick off, Chris, because um, <laughs> that's going to happen. But I'll, I'll, I will try and fly out that grass strip. But for me, it's too expensive at the moment. And also, there's nothing to do um, with, in, British, in, in British civilian aviation at the moment. You literally, from what I can gather, I speak to a lot of pilots, a lot of private pilots. They, they go and hire an aeroplane. A friend of mine is called Plain Old Ben, Ben Cornwell. He's got a channel on YouTube. He picks up an airplane, flies it to somewhere, has a very expensive lunch, you know, the most expensive hamburger you've ever eaten in your life, flies it back, does some filming in the jet, and you know, I call it a jet in the airplane, sorry. And then um, he lands and he says, well, that's 500 quid I'm never going to see again. And, and for me, there's no, I used to get it. Uh, I remember I've got friends on the F-18 out in the States and one of the, the guys out there, the reason I'm talking about this is because I'll tell you why I'm not flying in the UK. Um, he will be given an F-18 sometimes and they say, go and do some stuff. And he's like, what do I do? What am I going to do with a single F-18 Hornet by myself? It's, you know, it's, it's the truth, isn't it? It's like, I can't even do air combat. I've got no one to fight against. It's like the most tedious thing in the world. So for me, until I get a purpose with uh, aviation, I, I'm not going not gonna to fly. So, and it probably is, Chris, isn't it? It's putting a camera in that, that airplane, flying around and having these kind of conversations with someone isn't it oh the the, the limit the, you know there's loads of um possibilities now what what with the way media is going um i i certainly would consider going back to the states for a flying holiday yeah and it would be reasonable i mean for less than let's say two thousand pounds you could get you probably get get your fill of flying you know uh, yeah. um yeah i i'd consider I would consider that. It's a funny thing, isn't it? In the States, they have aeroplanes like we would have a car. That's right. You know, not not everybody, obviously, but the, the ranch owners and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we had these things called, we had to watch out for no rads. Okay. That was these kind of hillbillies that they didn't even have a radio in their plane. <laughs> you know, they literally just get up to go to their friend's ranch 30 miles over there. They they didn't radio. They had their own run 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 you know runway in in, in the house that they, yeah yeah on their property and they'd hop in their single engine cessna up they'd go over to their friend's ranch and come back and 
they wouldn't even tell ground control or air traffic control that they were going up, right? Crazy. And that's why you had to watch out for these no no rounds. But it was, a, it was an interesting scenario. But yeah, I'd do it again. When I get the money, I'll, I'd consider it. I'm, I'm not too bothered. The same as I didn't go, go. I thought about remortgaging my house and doing the commercial license. But then do you know what I honestly thought? I thought, I don't want to sit in a cockpit for like eight hours doing nothing. Except That's why I don't do it. Yeah. Pushing buttons on the computer. That That's why I don't do it. Would be a wasted life. Um, I've got many friends doing that. Many, my brother does it. My brother is a pilot with Emirates on the 777. Um, so he's got a, one of the biggest aircraft you can fly. He flies that, you know, he loves the lifestyle. He's, you know, he's a, he's a great guy. He's very social. But no, he flies to Thailand. Like he, he does 11 hour trips. Stays two nights, comes back again. And that's not me. The worst bit for me going on holiday is being in that tube. You know, the airport is the worst bit. Uh, if I could, I'm a, I'm a traveling fan. My wife and I, you know, we do travel. If I can just be in the middle of Berlin, I'm a happy man. You know, if I've got to fly, to, if I've got to go to Heathrow or, or Manchester or Birmingham, go through the airport. I mean, what is security going to be like now? Jeez, you know, it's going to be horrendous. And then I've got to go through all that, kind of sit by the gate, get into the plane, sit there next to read something, get off, do the same thing in reverse, then be in the middle of Berlin. I'm like, I'd rather drive, Chris, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I should clarify. I mean, absolutely no offense to pilots who love what they do. And I get it. I, some people love the technical aspect that, that you're yeah. here and you're via this computer, you're controlling, you know, it's mm. all system based now. It's not so much of the, you know, chopped away, ginger, I'm going to land this baby. It's, it's, the commercial um, airlines, obviously much more system-based, a uh, computer system. And, and I got a friend, he just loves that, you know. Yeah. He, went, he yeah. went into flying, not because he liked to fly, but because he liked to, to do this, you know. To the management, yeah. The, the management, right? So, yeah. I mean, no offense to people that love flying, great. I, 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 am, I really envy you. But for me, I thought, hang on, that's 11 hours in a cockpit that I could be like traveling around the world and, and mm. exploring and getting like a variety of experiences. And so um, I'm the same. Yeah, I'm the same. Do you remember, can you, can you tell us, Tim, what it was like the first time you flew solo? Uh, oh, well, actually, I do actually. Um, I'm trying to think whether this is the first time. The first time would have been a couple of circuits. Um, the, the, the first memory I have of being in an airplane by myself, it is on that flying scholarship for the Air Force with a company called Oxford Aviation Training, I think, down in um, Kiddington, down in Oxfordshire. Uh, the first memory I have is is doing, like you do like a triangle, don't you? You have to go, you know, like a little Navex, your navigation exercise. And I remember approaching some weather um, and like, you know, when the ground comes up and the weather comes down and it's that kind of whole steamroller coming towards you. Like, no, it's like, it's going to take me four days to get there. You know what I mean? But it's still like, no weather. And thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, uh, and actually kind of reaching the weather and still being beneath it and going, oh, there's clouds. I don't want to go near the, you know, because I haven't got an instrument rating. I can't go in the weather. I'm like, oh. And then finishing my Navex and come back thinking, oh, I survived that. And I, and I remember from that day on thinking, you've got to prepare for these events before you get in the airplane. And that's something that I do in life now, by the way, is as I'm, I'm a big, and it's a, it's a problem. I always think in, in advance, like what if happens? And that comes from that first, that first event, really. I remember being in an airplane of, of coming up against something I hadn't really considered before. It's, it can be terrifying. 
Oh yeah. You, you don't want to get caught in cloud because if you can't see and you, 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 you've not got an instrument range, you don't have the instruments to get you down safely. Mm. I took off once and I left it too late to leave this um, airfield. By the time I got up to altitude, it was dark and I was just, oh, really? I was just a student. And then the fear that came over me of what do I do, do I go back to that airfield and land and just sleep in the airplane? I'm not supposed to be flying, right? And God, I put on every bloody light I could find on that plane. I'll tell you, I would have put the Christmas lights on if I could have found a switch. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I tentatively radioed through to air traffic control and said, I didn't tell them I was a student. I just went, I can't remember my call sign, but like November 50 Bravo, right? And but sure, November 5th, Bravo, if you can take bearing and go into a holding pattern. And I was like, right, yeah, Roger, affirmative. I thought, he's letting me come in. He's letting me come in. I had to fly about 12 miles back to the main, you know, where, where the flight yeah, was. Yeah. And as I came up, he came on the, came over the air again. Right, 5-0, Bravo. Uh, no, make that a straight on approach. Your traffic is cleared. That meant traffic for people yeah. listening is you got they give you traffic and you've got to see what the, where this traffic is because it could be bloody concord or something right it could be a yeah. 747 it could be yeah. could be a fighter jet it could be anything you've got to be able to see it before you come into land because obviously if you don't that's when accidents can happen so my i'm looking out for the traffic and it's all apparently it's already landed and he gave me a straight on approach, which meant I can just come straight in and down the runway. And um, on the rural runways, you click your mic button, I think it's 12 times, and the lights just come on like something out of Star Wars all down the runway. It's amazing. This one, because it's a main airfield, it's uh, Fort, Fort Pierce, I think it is. Um, the lights are always on, but you're coming down a runway that's designed for you know commercial aircraft and you're just in a little Cessna it's just a brilliant feeling to land in the dark with all the lights and and then this very nice man on the radio I, I think in the night time the the ground control all went home so it's just this guy then directed me to my um to the uh apron you know where you you park the plane I can't yeah. I can't even remember the terminology yeah it's an apron isn't it yeah but yeah so yeah I I I know that feeling of fear. You you've got to get it right. There's no second chance in a plane, is there? No. And to be honest, I don't think I was ever because anxiety is a big thing when you're not only learning to fly, but of course, in the military aviation, it never stops because there's always another workup. It's like it's like the same thing with the Marines. If you do the Mountain Leaders course or you went special boats or something, there's always another thing that you can you can mess up. You can potentially fail or it can injure you. You know. It's, and, and on the front line, there's always that. And on flying training, there is always that, especially for instructors as well. There's always instructor upgrades. So you're never comfortable in role. And it's probably quite a good thing because if you were comfortable, you could be complacent as well, Chris. You, know, you don't want to be complacent in an airplane. So there is always that, that next thing going on. It was only towards the very end of my flying career, after about 20 years, um, where I started to get under-aroused. I've always been a low-arousal pilot anyway. And I started to get very under-aroused. And I started to realize, look, you've done this too long now. You're going to need to take a ground tour um which is why i went to afghanistan by the way in 2011 because of that i went take me out you know, give me a ground tour and the air force went well go to afghanistan instead and i was like brilliant thanks for that 
but that's what they do, isn't it? Um, and then I came back and carried on flying and that kept me going for another few years and, until eventually when I did leave, I, I remember thinking this is the right time. This is the right time to get out of this. Let's, let's talk through your career then, Tim, if that's okay. Um, when did you do your test? Was that on this sort of, did you call it a scholarship? Yeah, so it's a flying scholarship is available to anyone. I'm pretty sure the Air Force still do it now. I think it's 20 hours now. It's not, uh, there's not many of them. It's a way of introducing the people to flying. And majority of those people don't, don't join the military. And it's fine because um, it's about in, industry leaders being sympathetic to the military and things like that. And of course, people that, you know, might run BP or, or Shell or something will turn around and go, I did a flying scholarship with the Air Force. And here's some Air Force guy asking for a job. Yeah, come and have an interview. That's what they're, that's what that kind of thing's for. Um, but I ended up going to university. I did very badly academically, Chris. I don't know whether you realise. Um, I, uh, I did my GCSEs. They went fine. And then I changed school into a college down the road. It's a whole new environment, trying to fit in, ego, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I got two E's and an N in my A-levels. So I did really badly, which meant either resitting my A-levels. I got into some smoking drugs when I was, you know, that kind of stuff you do uh, when you're a kid. And then um, resit the A-levels or go and do another qualification somewhere else. So I took the opportunity to go to what was the University of West of England. It used to be a polytechnic, of course, and I did an HND in engineering. And then that led to a degree in engineering. And then I managed to get into the Navy. So I joined the Navy back in 98. Uh, that's Dartmouth up there, by the way. Britannia Royal Naval College, Dartmouth, which you may have been to. I went to Limston when I was in. I don't know if they went to Dartmouth. Some Marines did come up to Dartmouth for a language course when I was there. We just went to the pub and got smashed up. Mm-hmm. Um, which is very traditional, isn't it? When you get bootnecks come up, what, like, what should we do? Just go to a pub and get smashed. Yeah, you know. yeah, that's kind of um, the only the only thing we did in the Marines. Yeah, it's, it's, exactly. That's it, isn't it? It's like that's the, the, the language we all spoke, wasn't it? You know, Royal Marines and, and naval officers come together, and yeah, we all speak the same language, which was alcohol and, and girls probably at the time. Um, so I went to Dartmouth for for about six months, I think it was almost a year with with fleet time, and then we started flying training which was on the, um, the, the Slingsby Firefly at Barks and Heath. It's a yellow aeroplane piston engine. And from that, the weirdest thing about that is the reason I ended up getting stream jets is because I asked for it. It wasn't necessarily any kind of talent. It's just because I went up to the senior Navy guy and said, can I fly Sea Harris, please? And he went, yeah, no one else seems to want to. Everyone seems to want to fly helicopters. So, um, yeah, why not? Isn't that weird? And, and, of course, the way it works in the military you know, is... I can't, I can't do. I can't ask him tomorrow, can I? Yeah, <laughs> sure you can. Have you got his phone number? I'll give him a call. That's it. I've got this guy, Chris. Yeah, yeah, he wants to fly. Yeah, you, you wouldn't want to do it, Chris. I tell you, you wouldn't want to do it. Um, it's a hell of a stressful process going through flying training, especially going through flying training on jets because it takes the young people seven years now. The Air Force messed it up. The Ministry of Defence bought into a contract to privatise flying training. It was a poor contract. Um, UKMFTS, United Kingdom Military Flying Training System. It's getting better now because it's halfway through a 25-year contract. Privatised it, and it takes seven years to get guys through fast jet flying training. And who wants to do that? Most guys join the mid-20s. So now you're in your early 30s, starting a family, and you still haven't finished flying training yet. It's awful. Um, so I, you know, I advise people to look at rotary or multi-engine. Uh, it takes, takes less time, and it tends to be a bit easier. I hate to say it. It just is. It's just a bit easier to get through. Jet training is long. It's quite hard, especially towards the back end, just is what it is. But then um, I went from the Firefly onto the Tucano, which is a, a turboprop aircraft at Linton on Ooze, with the Navy still. And then from there, I went to RF Valley and um, 
I trained on two squadrons that ended up being on as an instructor in the end, a uh, 2-8 squadron, uh, which was advanced flying training on the Hawk T1 that the Red Arrows use. And then you do weapons training on the Hawk T1, but on a squadron called 19 Squadron. And then you, after that is when I transferred to the Navy and ended up on, sorry, transferred to the Air Force and ended up on the, the Tornado Squadron, um, 12 Squadron up at Lossiemouth. We had seven squadrons of tornadoes. And uh, from, from that, after four years, a couple of tours of Iraq, four or five years, uh, I went back to Valley and I stayed at Valley for the next decade, which I'm not saying is the best thing to do, but it just kind of worked out that way. I'd rather have gone back to a tornado, but um, uh, back on the 2-8 squadron as an instructor and then uh, into Afghanistan for six months with the US Army. And that was... You, uh, in a- for, for us uh, us novices, that's probably not the right word, but what's it like then when you climb in a tornado for the first time? Um what's it what's it like to fo- to fly a jet for the first time I, a jet i'm guessing a jet is a turbine engine as opposed to a piston engine is that right yeah or turbo prop a turbo prop obviously by the name has a prop on the front i mean a jet that's still a jet engine uh, a jet like people would see the red arrows that's that's a jet aircraft and that's the red arrows is the hawk t1 made in 1970 early 1974 roughly it's quite a dated aircraft and that's the one that students used to all go on to that would be the first that's the first jet i flew was a was a hawk and it's very much um it's all you know at the time uh, the dials if you if you're familiar with like an mg midget or an mg bgt or you know you get in this thing it's got baker light dials my wife eventually flew in one as well um one of my pilots on the squadron uh they were used to fly spouses and she managed to get a flight in the back seat of a of a hawk and she got in and she was like oh this is like my mg midget she's got a red mg midget at home here She's like, oh, Baker like dials seem to be the same, and of course they're the same. It was made at the same time, you know what I mean? Do you um, want to just explain to him what an MG midget is? Because I don't MG midget, yeah, you're international now, aren't you? You're all over the world. Well, it's not just that; it's just that they they were in my youth, so I doubt anyone now. Yeah, knows what they are. that is valid. Okay, so it is a car that was manufactured in the '60s. It's a very small, lightweight sports car, um, soft top, uh, two seats. Um, and if you think of like uh, an MX-5, uh, a Mazda MX-5, it's like a mini version, one of those. But it's very old. So all the dials in it are, you know, made of what's called Bakelite, which is a, a kind of an old form of, I suppose, what you look at as plastic in the olden day. Um, and the Hawk T1 was made during the era. So it is a very analog cockpit is what we would call it. Um, the Hawk T2, which, of course, came after the T1, and I, I was an instructor on that aircraft, is a very um, futuristic cockpit with a lot of, TV screens and head-up displays and everything else. And that's what I ended up um, teaching students on. But the first time you get into a Hawk or into a jet by yourself, remember, you can't, you don't, you're not really aware anyway because the instructor is always behind you when you're a student because it's a tandem cockpit. So you crew in, you do your checks and everything. The first thing, I'll tell you what kind of puts it to you, Chris, is when you walk out to the jet, there's no instructor there. You've got to fit a seat cover, a seat apron over the ejection seat because the ejection seat has harnesses and things that can snag the controls. So they have to be dragged into the middle, all attached, all tucked away. And then this apron goes over the ejection seat and you fasten it in. Doing that, you're like, there's no one else in this airplane. Um, (laughs) And then you get in and, of course, you can't really turn around to see them. It's it's hard because the ejection seat's behind you. But there's no one to talk to. Um, It's quite lonely in that respect. And there's no one, of course, to check that what you're doing is correct. Uh, and in the later years, I used to send these students solo, of course, uh, and instructors that came back from other aircraft like Typhoon and Harry and all sorts. You know, you'd put them in the Hawk and you say, off you go and have a, have a play. And 
and because because you can empathize with them because you've done it yourself you can say to these students look you're going to have these feelings because you have to brief them it takes about an hour you know they've done um about 15 hours or 13 hours on the hawk tc they did before they went solo 13 hours and then the solo really is go off in the area do some aerobatics do some um there's a there's a general handling package we practice such as stalls and things like that and uh you say to them you're gonna you know all these things are gonna happen um you're gonna feel a bit lonely you can't you can't talk to anyone but there is someone in the control tower um and he, that person is there on a separate frequency anything goes wrong normally it was me uh you can dial me up and we'll have a chat and some of these students would call me up and they say i've pressed the button and in the head-up display there's some writing and i don't know how to get rid of it and uh you say okay what is it what does it say it's like it's a big circle and there's there's some writing underneath underneath it it says like amram or something it's like, okay you've selected an air-to-air missile mode what we need to do is bring you out of that missile mode so you can uh you can come back and land the airplane they're like how do i do that it's very easy to do chris because you can knock a switch on the stick and of course w- w- the first thing you do with an airplane is you don't learn to fight it you learn to fly it so these all these modes would come at the end of the course um all the weaponeering would come at the very end uh you know it's like it's like being a marine isn't it you do with a fizz first and eventually you get into um weapons and everything else and mortars and, and everything else comes later um the same thing with flying so of course they do 13 trips of learning how to stall and land and take off and doing circuits and and then of course they get up there press the wrong button and all of a sudden it comes up with you know some massive radar screen and some weapons and guns and things um so yeah it's a lot of fun but yeah so it's a bit lonely i'd say and it's a bit i say it's a bit lonely and it's um the weather's always really good for your first solo. But when you get down is when you, when you really appreciate what's happened because no one's ever going to take that away from you. And that's what I tell people when they come back from their first solo. I grab them. Literally, I used to grab them by the arm and say, you've just flown a jet by yourself and no one else in that airplane. No one, doesn't matter whether I chop you tomorrow. Chop is when we fail people. We call it the chop, like chop. Um, even if you fail tomorrow, it doesn't matter. You've flown a jet for the rest of your life now. You know, you've got those wings on your chest. You know, you have flown a jet solo. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Some of these people are very young. I'm, I'm telling you now, some of them are 19, 20 years old and we give them a 28 million pound airplane and we hope they bring it back. And so far they have all brought it back. At what stage in this process do you go, do you know what? I'm going to go and do a loop the loop or I'm going to fly upside down. How, how does that come about? Uh, so go through flying training and get through packages. So, um, the first package you go through is a general handling package. And within that general handling will be an aerobatics uh, sortie flight where you're taught aerobatics. Remember, there's a lot of simulator work as well. Uh, so you, you're in the simulator a, a lot, almost half the amount that you're in the airplane, really. So what well, equal amount you're in the airplane. Um, and then you do an instrument flying bit. Then you do a formation bit. Then you do a, a tactical formation bit. And then you go into combat. And so th- I, re- I think by trip five or six, you're doing... Uh, aerobatics and your and aerobatics is there for a purpose it's to, it's to understand the the um, the dynamics of the airplane so you're max performing the airplane it's like taking your car and putting it on a skid pan or taking it around a racetrack so normally you never take the car to that limit but you need to know how it handles in case it does that so we very quickly um, take the students into max performing the aircraft we call it max performance maneuvers now we don't call it aerobatics anymore but it is, it is flying the aircraft to the limits it can be flown. Um, but there were a lot of pilots I flew with that um, would always go upside down every sortie, every single sortie. They'd be like, there's no point us being a jet pilot unless we can go upside down because it's something that helicopter pilots and multi-engine pilots can't do. I couldn't be bothered. All you got to do is roll. I just thought, whatever, I can't. But they would. They'd come back to the airfield and go upside down and 
for them it was a big thing and that, that's cool you know that's what? that's you know we're, we're going to come on to this later on but do you know the Top Gun music has just started playing in my head when you said they come back to the airfield and they go upside down? Down, 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 down. That, that film did more damage to. <laughs> no, it's All right, well, let's, let's talk about that now then, and then I've got a million more questions we can come back to. So, Top Gun, uh, tell us what was that realistic? What damage did it do? <sighs> there's a lot of stories actually there's a, i think a three-part story on youtube about the making of top gun which i would recommend people go and watch if they're interested in um why some of the scenes in top gun are in top gun um such as why they're flying through the mountains whilst they're doing air combat and things like that so don simpson and jerry bruckheimer there was a, a naval um a guy from the from the u.s navy and he was a pilot and he was there to to feed them information and say this is what we would do now of course in filmmaking a lot of flying chris is routine and it's tedious and it's boring and you would be, make a rubbish film. Okay. It would make a rubbish film. Um, my wife always used to say it's the most unglamorous, um, the most unglamorous job you could ever have. I used to wear like, um, I used to wear like these undergarments, like long johns. And I used to wear, you know, it's like, I know Royal Marines, they never used to wear underwear, but we used to have to wear underwear, you know, uh, we used to have to, or it, so you, you're wearing three or four layers and then you're wearing a rubber suit and a, a knitted suit and a rubber suit to protect you in the water. And then you're walking out to the airplane. It's not a glamorous thing. Top Gun comes out, of course, back in 1986. I was 12 at the time. And uh, of course it makes it look very glamorous. And what it did is it sucked a load of us into 20 years worth of flying career. And then of course we realized very quickly that it's not a glamorous career at all. Um, so uh, Top Gun, obviously a lot of things happen in Top Gun. And I think what I might do, Chris, is maybe a, one of those react videos to Top Gun mm. where, I, where I talk about it and see if people are interested in that. But there are a lot of things in Top Gun that wouldn't happen in, in the real world, of course. But I, I'll be honest with you, as a recruitment tool for the US Navy, it did absolute wonders. It was, um, it did absolute, and of course, before that came out, Top Gun came out, I believe, in uh, May 1986, in January I think mid 25th of January or something, uh, Iron Eagle came out and I'm an Iron Eagle fan because I like Dougie Masters and Chappie Sinclair. And this was a story about a young kid, strangely like me, who wasn't doing very well academically. His father was in the military. He wanted to fly airplanes, broken home, that kind of stuff. And um, eventually he, uh, he manages to get into the air force in a kind of a, a back route uh, and end up flying F-16s and rescuing his dad. And his that- whole, you know, I know you've seen it at all, but... Well, I want to come back to that because I'm going to ask you about Officer and a Gentleman, which is another classic film. Oh. But as far as the Top Gun's concerned, let's list for our audience then. What, what is wrong about that, that, that film? I said to you earlier, you wouldn't buzz the tower, which is fly so no. low that here's the air... air here's the air control tower... And boom, you fly over it and give everyone, everyone in the tower the fright of their life because you'd probably just lose your flying career right there and then. Yeah, you wouldn't fly again. Yeah, you wouldn't fly again. And you wouldn't be doing it whilst you're on a specialist training course um, like Pete Mitchell was, of course. I mean, that's the, the thing about Top Gun, uh, Top Gun got the spirit of flying right. I think that's why it was so attractive to, to aviators around the world and to young people that looked in the sky and went, oh, I wouldn't mind doing that. So it got the, the cavalier nature of the pilot correct. Pilots are mavericks. That's the whole point. Um, pilots aren't conformists in any way, shape, or form. I mean, 
what's conformist about wanting to break away from the ground. Literally, I want to leave this thing that I'm in right now with all these people and I want to go somewhere else. That in itself is nonconformist. Um, that in itself is, is, is a, a rebel. It's a maverick. It's someone that doesn't want to conform to the, the status quo. So Top Gun did that very well. And in naming um, the, the lead character, Maverick, I think that was one of their sort of genius traits because, of course, every pilot I've ever met is very similar to, to that. No pilot's going to listen to anyone or, or take orders. You don't do it. We, we do things because it's the right way of doing things. And that's why, you know, you know how it is in the military. People, don't, people rarely give orders in the military. It's just guys, this is the commander's intent. He wants us to go and take this hill. Everyone happy. Yeah, let's go and take the hill. I'm not ordering you to take a hill. I'm going to go that way and take a hill. You're going to come with me. Of course you are because we're a band of brothers and that's what we do. And we want to go and, you know, do what we do, what we're, we're supposed to do. So things in Top Gun that they didn't get right. Yeah. Buzzing that tower, um, going back up and picking up your wingman. Cause he's, he's not landing on the carrier. Uh, all those kind of things. Um, let, 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 we need to break this down, or people will be like, "What the hell are these guys going on about?" But right. It's the bit where his mate was up there, and he was too scared to bring it down on the was it the un- undulating deck of the carrier? Yeah. He, yeah. Um, um, and who did someone go up and talk him down? I, I can't. Yeah. Remember. So Maverick, he, he touched the deck, didn't he? And went up again and talked him down, and said, "Anyone seen a carrier around here?" And uh, yeah, talking down onto the deck. There is someone that does that. There is um, someone in on the carrier that, that, that gets on the radio and you know, chats to people and talks them down as a landing signal officer and all these kind of people. Not the, so, guy, but, uh, not the guy from the NAFI, is it? No, not that guy. That, 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 yeah, that would be, that'd be a pretty good guy to do it. Um, so then they go... So um, the, their combat, again, all their combat scenes, I think they've been debunked pretty much. That's not... Air combat is... Again, happens very quickly. Within about 40 seconds, someone normally dies. It's, it's literally under a minute. Um, and that's even if you, that's, that's normally outside of visual range. You know, missiles are being thrown at, you know, 20, 30 miles out. People are defending against them and trying. If you do come into what's called the merge, you're in a really bad place now because now you're tied up fighting with someone and his buddy can come in and kill you out, which is why you always fly as pairs or as fours. So there's always someone in depth to come in. So that, that stuff, the whole hitting the brakes, flying right by. Yeah, that's never going to work for you. But then it does work for the camera. If you ever look at any of the films I put on my YouTube channel, when you see a, uh, an aircraft outside, uh, an aircraft I might be doing combat with, it's tiny weeny. And it, it's really hard to see and to keep people visual in the combat arena, in the visual combat arena. So in Top Gun, they had to reduce those distances right down, like literally right down. So that it actually looked good. So um, for real, you never be that close to, to someone. It just doesn't happen. Uh, you're normally about a range of about a mile, and the aircraft is probably about this big. The wingspan is about this big um, as you look at it. But and I show that on my videos. But in in Top Gun, of course, you just you have to bring those jets right in. They did a program at RF Valley recently, and exactly the same thing happened. They tried filming from the cockpit of other aircraft, and the producers of the film. I did a bit of consultancy work on it. They said we've just got it's just the, it's not worth us filming this. You've got to bring these aircraft like literally right in um so that was done uh that was done and obviously doing air combat around mountains is something that you're not going to do you have a hard deck you have a base height we call it of um five thousand feet clear of the the ground normally or ten thousand feet and you don't go beneath that literally to the foot if you go beneath it like a foot below then you you terminate that particular engagement and you reset and you you carry on so there's a moment in that film when um goose his his uh, co-pilot 
it's not his co-pilot, it's his navigator, isn't it? Yeah, his weapon systems officer, whatever they want to call it, yeah. He, they, they meet the Russian jets or the MiG, they're flying along together, and then they they say they invert, so they roll over, and his navigator gets the Polaroid yeah. camera out, so an instant camera, and takes a photo. Well, I think we all know that that, that manoeuvre is just never, ever going to happen, probably in human history. No. It would be quite remarkable if, if travelling at that speed, what was it, 500 miles an hour? or Yeah, something like that. The... the, fun, uh, the um... The Blue Angels, the US Navy display team, do a, an inverted pass, I think, with the gear down. And it's very similar to that. But, um, yeah, it's not going to happen in a combat situation. Uh, but that's the great thing about Top Gun, isn't it? I mean, if it was – I mean, how many jobs do you know where if they filmed the job and tried to make it into a film, it would be just the most horrendous thing in the world? You know, it, What about the, the Polaroid team? Do pilots take cameras up there? I, I think oh, well, now everyone's got a phone, haven't they? So, and they, they gave us these flight suits – um and the you can i think the typhoon guys in their in their jackets they wear can put the phone there they always say don't take phones or switch them off pilots obviously don't bother because you might want to take a picture of yourself because you're looking cool aren't you say so, um they, they do say switch phones off on airplanes don't they that's rubbish we all know it's rubbish um the pilot up front there is probably doing something on his phone um they used to affect they, they reckon there could have been something that would have affected navigation equipment but nowadays it doesn't but everyone switches their phone off anyway don't they but yeah so we carry phones in case and that really is in case you land away um so if you hit a bird or, or you have a fuel issue or something you divert into another airfield well you want to be able to phone the boss up and say look i haven't stolen the jet boss you know i'm i've hit a bird i've, I've just landed in manchester uh, i'm gonna have to turn the jet around, do some servicing, fill it with fuel and try and bring it back. And that's why you take the phone. And obviously, as I said, it's quite good for the, the selfie, isn't it? Um, there should be more of that going on, more selfies going on in fast jets, but of course there isn't. And what about the, the bit in Top Gun when they have to eject? I can't remember why. Did they... I can't remember Yeah, why. so that, it was a compressor stall, wasn't it? So flying through someone's jet wash, getting compressor stall, and then adverse yaw. Which I don't, it's interesting this because the F-14 did suffer um, in the early days from from those kind of issues. But also uh, there was um, a, a young female pilot who was killed from an engine failure on the early models of the F-14. That rotated the, the jet very short of the carrier and it turned the jet upside down and they both ejected into the sea. Uh, Cara Holtzgreen or something, I, think, I can't remember her name, but I remember reading about it. It's a very awful accident. But insofar as getting an aircraft into a flat spin as that, which would then compress airflow over the top of the canopy and wouldn't let the canopy, the canopy is rockets. And when you fire your ejection seat, the canopy rockets fire and they fire that canopy away from the seat. It's a huge piece of perspex, huge piece of um, uh, material, so like two, 300 kilograms. And of course, the rear seat went into that. Uh, to get an aircraft to spin like that, I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think you could. I don't think that is a possible emergency uh, possible um emergency i don't think that's possible to happen the U- uk aircraft we have a micro detonation cord which you're familiar with of course that runs down the the canopy itself and when the seat fires the canopy explodes the tornado canopy did come off the canopy on the tornado had rockets and it would fire off over the tail of the aircraft and the seats would go um the hawk has this micro detonation cord so the canopy explodes like a microsecond before the seat fires out uh, so I, yeah, that's a difficult emergency. I don't think that would have happened, but yeah, it's just it's great TV. It's great TV. They, en- they ended up in the water, didn't they? And and the rescue helicopter came to get 
to get, I guessing in a training scenario, if you are near water, <laughs> there's a, the nearest naval base or, or air force base has a rescue helicopter. Is, am I think, am yeah. I on the yeah, right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, we had a um, search and rescue at RF Valley. Uh, there was always a search and rescue aircraft at RF Valley. And uh, if, you know, every day we'd be flying over the water at Valley because it's an island, Anglesey. And um, we train with that helicopter, remember? So every year you do sea drills where you get taken out on a little boat in Hollyhead and uh, you're in all your kit in a harness and they drag you behind the boat. You've got to get out of your harness as if you're being dragged in a parachute. And then you inflate your life raft. It should inflate automatically, but we swim over to it in case it hasn't. And we it's underneath the seat that we eject on and we pull a cord and it inflates itself. And then we get into the life raft and we do it up and then we bail it out of water. And then they leave us there for ages, by the way, because they're, they're sadists. Mm-hmm. And eventually the helicopter comes over from uh, RF Valley, or it's now at Carnarvon. It's now a civilian asset. And it comes over and picks you up. And it's the scariest thing ever because this thing hovers and there's a guy dangling on the line. And those guys, those loadmasters that come and rescue you, they're, they're, they're pretty swept up guys. I mean, if you mess them around, you're going to get a punch in the face pretty much. You know, mm-hmm. There's a way of being picked up. And if you don't conform with that, they're going to cut things off you, literally. So they, they've got a huge J knife. They're coming, swinging in. The helicopter's coming in like a 10 knots and they come and land on you. They're on the water and they land on you. You're handing them your Beckett saying this, you attach to this. And this is the thing that attaches me to my life raft. They attach you to the Beckett. They cut away your life raft thing and then they hoist you up because they're very, they're in a very dangerous situation there. They're hovering over a sea in a helicopter and an engine failure, a uh, single engine failure. They, they've got to fly away and they're going to cut you loose. They're going to, whatever height you're at, they're going to cut everything away. They don't want to be there. So um, it's a scary experience. A lot of salt spray in your face. And I hated it. I hated some, some massive load master coming and landing on me and, you know, but you do it every year to practice it. I think it's every two years, actually. But yeah, you said the life raft was in the seat. Yeah. Do you when you when you eject? My understanding, and I guess every jet is different, but my understanding is you're in the seat when you eject, mm-hmm. but then you leave the seat and it falls away. Is is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it depends what height you're at. The seat's got something called a barostatic, a barostatic timing release unit. I think it's called. I might get. I might have got that wrong. Uh, so when a seat comes out of the airplane, it says, oh, I'm at, I think it was above 10,000 feet. It says I'm above or below 10,000 feet. And um, if you're above 10,000 feet, the seat stays with you. And it just, a little drogue comes out, stabilizes you, but it wants to get you below 10,000 feet because above 10,000 feet, it's kind of hard to breathe. You know, there's not much oxygen. Mm. Uh, and then when it gets below 10,000 feet, the seat falls away. So a low level ejection would see the seat fire out. You're in the seat. And then as the seat comes out, about a quarter of a second later, a little drogue comes out, starts pulling out a main chute. The seat falls away from you completely. And the bottom of the seat comes off. And underneath it is what we call a personal survival pack. It's a big yellow box. And that hangs down from you about 12 feet beneath you. And uh, as that hits the water, it's salt water activated or it's water activated and the life raft inflates. So your, your jacket, you've got to inflate that yourself or the water will inflate your life jacket. You've got that on. But as you hit the water, the, uh, the raft beneath you should have already inflated and then you hit the water and you shoot, you're under your harness. And then you just pull your little life raft in on the end of it, get into the life raft. It's a bit of a hassle, to be honest. And then you, only part of it's blown up. You've got to blow up the floor and you've got to blow up the, the part around you as well. Inside that life raft then, there's also another pack which has things like an axe in it. And it has some snare wire to catching rabbits. And it has, um, in your life, 
vest itself. You've got water pouches, so you can have some water. It's got seasickness tablets in there as well. It's got hats, gloves, lots of stuff for you to survive. Um, Obviously, yeah. being Navy and, and not Air Force, you, you never take the seasickness tablets. Whatever. I'll just throw them to someone else. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, never take them. Well, no. That was another error in the uh, Top Gun film, wasn't it? Is he, When Goose died, Maverick was crying. And us Navy guys, we that's whatever. Yeah, why yeah. did you do that? Never going to happen. Never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Never going to happen. Special on camera. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> strength, strength three. <laughs> yeah. So you said an interesting thing, Tim, and and um, of course I'm forgetting. Yeah, the tornado was a bomber, wasn't it? It wasn't a a dog. Wasn't designed for it was dog both. fighting. It was both. It had a, an air defense variant and it had a bombing variant. Um, an interceptor was a better word for it because it would go up, intercept things. And, but it, yeah, so it wasn't necessarily a, a fighter. I'm going to get so many spears for this, Chris. You know, if you get any other Air Force guy, you know, listening to this, who's flown F3s, it was F3, Tornado F3. Um, so you could go two variants, but the main, I say the main variant, so the man's variant, um, was the Tornado GR4, which was the, the bomber. And that's what John Peters and John Nicole got shot down in. They were in a GR1, but a previous version of that. Um, there you go they got shot down that is the GR1 that they got shot down in the updated one with a bit more avionics was called the GR4 it's just a, a midlife upgrade on the aircraft really but yeah so my, my role was really a low level strike role I'd go in very low under the enemy radar bomb targets kill loads of people come back tea medals that kind of stuff so let's let's talk about that then so when you were in Iraq and you were actually I'm guessing you were flying uh, can, do we call them operational sorties? Yeah, 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 op sorties. Yeah. Did you did you have to hit the bomb button? No. So I now we've spoken a bit before about this, Chris. Anyway, I'm lucky. I feel I'm lucky that I never had to um, prosecute targets in that particular conflict. It wasn't a conflict that many of us agreed with. Let's be honest. That said. If I had to put ordnance down to protect the guys on the ground, I would have done it. Twenty-seven, you know, twenty-four hours, you know, twenty-four-seven, three-six-five, every second. Anyone wanting that bomb, anyone wanting that gun, they were going to get it. Fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never had to, and I was quite lucky. There was one. Um, I did two tours out there. There was one very nasty event, and I wrote about it. And I wrote, um, I think the essay was uh, something like, "At least you're not a fighter pilot, or something." Or you know, if you think you've had a bad day, at least you're not. A f- you know, it could be worse. You could be a fighter pilot. And it was about that day when uh, the Prince of Wales Royal Regiment, which was a Hampshire regiment, their, my home regiment, um, they got hit pretty hard in a town called Amara, which is about an hour north of Basra. Uh, IED, roadside bomb, three guys killed. They didn't all die at the same time, though. They died over a period of an hour. We were over Basra at the time with a mate of mine called Steve, the guy whose last trip I filmed. And uh, we were called up there. It's called the Troops in Contact, you know they're in a bad way. And, uh, I got there and they were, there were bits of, you know, wagons strewn all over the place. I mean, they'd hit, they'd been hit pretty bad and there was crowds there and everything. You put the jet over, you know, low and fast. It tends to get rid of quite a lot of people that don't want to play when they see a you know, jet with its wings fully back. It's an angry machine. The tornado, if you, you don't want to get on the wrong side of it. I mean, it does a lot of, it's, it's, it's a mini war is how I look at it, Chris. I mean, if you bring a tornado into something, you're, you know, a lot of bad things are going to happen very quickly. 
So when you see that coming over the top of you, especially reheating the back, you know, and then I'm climbing up, then my mate comes in. It's like, you don't want to be around that. If you're up to no good, that's not a good place for you to be now. It was before when you were dropping, when you were putting IEDs by the road and you were clacking them off and everything and people were, that was fun for you as a, as an insurgent at the time. But now tornadoes are in place above you. Hmm. You don't want to be there. You're going to mingle back into the crowd. And the reason that was so important is because we're in contact with the guys on the ground and, uh, and they, they were saying one of the guys died pretty much as I arrived there. One of the guys died and they kept telling us this and it was kind of weird. So, I don't know. You've had combat, obviously. Strange things happen in combat. You can't really kind of place. It's like, why did that? I remember, I remember a Hercules, a big Hercules coming and landing in the middle of all of this. Now we're on different comms networks. And I'm like, who the hell is speaking to that Hercules? Because does he realize that he just had a convoy blown up like next door to where he's just landed? So I'm trying to get on the net to go, is that, is that Herc in here to pick up the casualties? Is that why the Hercules is coming? And they're like, no, no, we've got some rotary assets coming up to pick these guys up. There's, a couple of pumas inbound. They're 30 minutes out. I'm like, all right, well, who owns that Hercules? What's that doing there? Like literally this, this, this massive transport aircraft just landed in the middle of Amara on this strip. I'm saying to my buddy on the wing, I'm like, Steve, have you got anything on comms, mate, about what this guy's... No, not at all. It was random. It was a random... It just had nothing to do with it. It was a, it was a prearranged sortie. Like no one... They were on a different comms network. They just rocked up and just landed a Herc there, unloaded some guys, loaded some guys back in. And we're like... They didn't even know that there's operations going on. You know, didn't they didn't even know. Like a, a, didn't you have like a mutual military Well, yeah, we channel? did. We, well, we thought we did. We, we're on, we're on our, you know, our strike frequency. And obviously these guys, I think it was a US Herc, are rocking around on some individual thing. And then a, then a tanker, you know, I'm running out of fuel. I'm like, I've got to go to Baghdad. I've, the, the tanker tow line is in Baghdad. I'm like, we need to be supporting this. I have no fuel now. And the tankers, this is how good the tanker guys are. You know, these are the guys that give you fuel. Yeah, and the big airplanes, they give you. They were listening to everything we were saying. They dialed into our comms frequency. They'd heard about those troops in contact. They're something like an hour and a half flight time away in Baghdad. You know, we're on the east of Iraq next to the Iranian border. They're over, you know, to the west of the country. They're hearing this. They know how long we've been in country. They know what time we're supposed to go up to Baghdad to refuel from them anyway. They've done the whole fuel calculations. These are how switched on these multi-engine guys are in the tanking world. They've gone, these guys are not going to have any fuel. Right, let's get down there and let's go and give them fuel because they're not going to be able to make it up to us. They're going to have to go and land somewhere else. They're going to have to go and land in the Jaff or something or, or go home. We had no fuel to get home. So they've come down from Baghdad. And as I've called them up, as I've called up our strike frequency and said, guys, I've got to go to Baghdad. I've got no fuel. I'm, I'm literally on fumes. Um, the tanker guy, I'm not joking, he says, he says, uh, I think we're Wolf 3-4. He says, Wolf 3-4, look up. And I looked up, and this whole tanker is just coming over the top of me. Like, I'm over this operation, young guys are dying, and the tanker's come down to me. That's how it works. That's how incredible it is. I get straight up there. I refuel. It takes me like, you know, seven, eight minutes. I come back down whilst my buddy Steve does the whole um, oversight, overwatch stuff. And then he goes and gets fuel. And then the tanker, he says, guys, we'll hang on for you. When you're done here, we'll take you back home as well. So they stay with us. And then the whole way back down, unfortunately, Chris, another couple of guys died. Uh, and, they, they, and they kept telling us, oh, that guy's died. And that guy's died. The, the, and that, that hits you because you can't do anything. And that's one of the biggest things, I think, when we get soldiers with PTSD. A lot of it is from the inaction, not from the action, if that makes sense. Mm. A lot of it is the fact that they're there and, and the, the, their mate's been hit by an IED and there's no one to shoot at. You know, 
How unjust is that? It's like, just give me a fight. I'm happy. I'll fight. I'm ready to fight. It's all I've ever trained for. I mean, what was the point of me going down the bottom field of Limston and, and doing the ropes course and, and doing the mud runs? I'm fit and I want to fight and there's no one to fight. It's like the worst kind of war you could ever participate in. Well, and a lot of young, a lot of young men that, that call me up, that's part of their issue, unfortunately. Yeah, we, we, this is a great chance to point out to, to our young people listening, uh, considering the military or even in the military, is this is why you can never win these conflicts. Yeah. Why you're not, we're not there to win these conflicts. We're, you know, you, 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 these conflicts were never about winning. They're there about, like Vietnam, extending this conflict as long as possible so these sadistic, sociopathic banking families and arms companies um, make more and more money off the lives of these uh, dead young people. But you said it there. It was the same in Ireland. Yeah. These, these, uh, uh, um, I'm going to call them the enemy, right? These enemy, they were so good. They could attack you without being seen. They could move in. They could plant the the IEDs overnight and then just move away and be operated over a mobile phone call from Mm. someone you're never, ever going to see, right? Or a command wire, which leads away to to a firing point that it's completely hidden. Or they'll snipe at you. Uh, They'll be in a house. They'll have the curtains drawn to within maybe like two inches. So the room is dark. They'll be at the back of the room inside a cup, like let's just say a cupboard. They've taken the back off the cupboard. The doors of the cupboard are like that. So again, they, you know, so any light coming through that two inch gap in the windows isn't, isn't going to light up the room. They're then inside a a cupboard to hide, hide their like muzzle flash or, or whatever it might be. Those shots go off. You don't even see where they're coming from. Yeah. It's not like, ah, right, there's an enemy there. Right, fellas, section attack, you know, fix bayonets or whatever the case may be. That's right. Yeah, it doesn't right. happen. You're there literally to get blown up, bombed, shot at until simply by the rule that, you know, the logic of attrition, you've lost too many people. And then the, the politicians are then told, right, now you've got to go and get a peaceful resolution to this because the american people or the british people are fed up seeing coffins coming back for reasons that they can't put their finger on (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. no i agree with you and uh, yeah i mean i could amplify my father was in northern ireland of course he was a marine four five commando and he said very very similar things you know about, about northern ireland i think when uh was it martin mckinnis was out there i think he was a sniper with the with the IRA at the time. Um, one thing I try and talk to people about, especially young people going into the services is a lot of the people that you're fighting, they don't believe they're the bad people. You know, these are, it's that whole terrorist versus freedom fire. Now ISIS probably very different to that because it's a very, it's um, a religious ideology, of course, isn't it? Uh, quite a barbaric one by all intents and purposes. But the, the IRA, when people would look at what the IRA was, a lot of those people in the IRA were fighting and they, they firmly believed in what they were fighting for. And rightly so. And you and I, if we were, if we were growing up in those, in those times in, in Ireland, we'd probably be doing the same thing they were doing. It's just, it's just is what it is. It doesn't make you any better because you're a Marine or them any better because they're in, in the Irish Republican Army. It just is what it is. 
So when we're fighting these, it's well worth having a very balanced view about conflict when we're going into it. And like the people in, in Southern Iraq that I was over, um, they, they weren't, they weren't nasty, mean men. They, they were, they were saying, look, you've come into our country, you're invading us and my businesses have folded now because of you. I mean, you know, and this is why I'm blowing up this, this Land Rover because having troops in the middle of Amara means I can't trade like I used to trade properly. And therefore my family's suffering and my wife's leaving me and my kids falling out of school. And there's a reason for all this happening. But what people don't do, Chris, they don't go back far enough and say, right, why are we in Iraq in the first place? You see what I mean? And, and you, and this is what you're nailing here on your channel so well is you're like, yeah, yeah look for the bigger picture. Why are we in Afghanistan? Why are we in Iraq? Who's it serving? Who's the end person for this? You know? Yeah. I see people say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's about this. the Taliban. You don't understand. They're, they're e-. Whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, never presume someone else doesn't understand just because they have a different viewpoint, right? Second thing is, no, the us guys, we're old enough to know why we went into Afghanistan. And the lie was is that they had, I'm going to use the word terrorists. It's not a word I, I really try not yeah, to use because it's yeah. completely unhelpful. But the, the media, the media lies at the time were they've got terrorist training camps and that they did these terrible atrocity in New York, right? It was blamed on uh, Afghanistan training camps, right? all based on no evidence whatsoever. And why can we say that? Well, we can safely say that because there was never an investigation into what happened in New York ever. No criminal investigation, no aircraft investigation, which is, as you and I know, is mandatory under the FAA law. Yeah, yeah. If a plane crashes, let alone bloody, what was it? One, two, three, of four, four of them. And there was no FAA, in, really? Right, so anyway, so the lie was it was that, that, that these atrocity was blamed on these uh, terrorist training camps in Afghanistan. And, and, um, and that, was, that was the reason behind the invasion. It was nothing ever to do with uh, Taliban. That came, you know, that came later when the Taliban put up a fight because they've got troops landing in their country right yeah um, absolutely. I, I might not have dotted all the t's and crossed the i's but it's this it's this kind of thing but irregardless i would just like to say communication is everything you know the avenues of communication need to be explored before you hit you you hit the red button and start bombing people you know and if anyone thinks that these drones that are taken out like wedding, innocent wedding parties and yeah, they get their ace of spades, but by doing it, they, they level a whole freaking street of an innocent, oh, yeah. innocent yeah. village in the mid- if, if you can't see that just creates more enemy, then you, you're probably not that smart, you know? Yeah. But it's a business, Chris. It's a business war. I yeah. think Smedley Butler said that. Smedley Butler was a United States Marine Corps guy back in 19, what, 1912 or 15? I can't remember now. I have to look it up. But he said war is a racket. I think he wrote a whole essay on it. Of course it is. It's a business. And it's a very big business. And there's a lot of people employed in it. I mean, I, I, I speak, um, well, I'm employed by, a, uh, I say, a defense firm. I prefer to say they're an aviation um, 
design and manufacturing company, Aerolis. It's a, it's a way of building a, a modular flying training aircraft um, and a UAV type thing as well. It's a, it's, a very, it's a very good thing. But I don't look at it as a defense business as such. But majority of my friends I, I know are in defense in some way. Mm-hmm. And I don't really want to be in defense, to be honest with you. you know, I've been offered business development roles with all sorts of different companies. And, and I get it. It just doesn't make me feel... I don't know what the word is because I feel very hypocritical having spent 20 years in the military. I'm happy that I've done that in the military. I'm happy not to do it anymore. And I'm not being self-righteous. And, you know, the only place you can ever fly these airplanes, where is it here, is in the military. There's nowhere, you can't fly them anywhere else. You know, if you want to fly those airplanes, you join the military. Mm. Um, For me, if I was, and I, I get it because the dynamic flying you're doing, when do you get a chance to land a Hercules on a beach? Well, Unless you're in the military, you're never going to get that. My brother was a Hercules pilot, by the way. He was a transport guy, uh, tactical um, Hercules guy. So he would land aircraft all over Afghanistan. He has a great story about how he kind of went rogue with a, a British Hercules in Afghanistan. It just ended up like the lines of communication got a bit fuzzy and ended up kind of working for the Americans. They ended up in the wrong part of the country. And there was this British Hercules with all the American Hercules. And he's like, yeah, I think we've kind of messed this up. To like, there's only him and his load master and his um, his co-pilot, and they're like, I think I don't think the Air Force knows where we really are. But you know what I mean? You don't get those stories by flying uh, a seven, I don't know, seven eight seven from here to Madrid, you know, twice yeah. a week. So there, there is a reason to go into the military. But you're right, communication and eyes need to be really open because, I mean, I, I can remember, and I'm not only going to sidetrack here. Remember in Afghanistan, we went into Afghanistan and we quickly then went into Iraq, didn't we? Because Donald Rumsfeld said there's no good targets in Afghanistan. And of course, he wants targets. He wants things to blow up, doesn't he? So it looks like they're actually having... And of course, it's all to do with oil and everything else in Iraq. And it it was a regime change, which the United States had been involved in. If you look up, if you type in United States regime change, which is illegal by the Geneva Convention and everything else and law of armed conflict, you'll see America, that's all they've done. I'm not saying we haven't. We just do it a lot quieter than they do. Uh, Can I just... I, I need to clarify here, Tim. Because it's not the American people we're talking about, the same as we're not talking about the British people. And oh, we're, no, not, no. we're not slandering our wonderful service personnel. It comes down to a, a, a document that was written called Rebuilding America's Defenses. This is, America, this is the policy that informed these in, illegal invasions. That policy, Rebuilding America's Defenses, which said, uh, America needs to increase its military dominance in the world. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, however, it will not do so without a new Pearl Harbor, right? This is why it's no surprise that then what happened in New York yeah. happened to, to give this document the new Pearl Harbor that it needed. Or, or Yeah. Now, that document was written by a group called PNAC, Project for the New American Century. And this was a, they call it a neoconservative think tank. Right. And it was all the, uh, I'm talking, Tim, I'm not just sort of lecturing you. I'm talking no, to no, no, I'm familiar, so people, I'm at, the people at home, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might not know this. I know a lot of people have done their research. But this was, this neoconservative think tank were, like these rogue elements that had in basically almost like completely infiltrated the Bush administration. They were controlling that idiot like the puppet that, that he is, right? We need to remember that George Bush 
the Bush family is a huge crime family. If you read their history, um, they, they, the, the, their family fortune was founded on opium smuggling, right? Which is not something you're going to hear okay. about. They great. That was great. Great grandfather Bush, grandfather Bush. Uh, he arranged um, loans for the Luftwaffe during the war so they could get their fuel. Right. So this is an American doing what that war dealing or whatever that, you know, supplying, yeah. supplying the enemy. Um, they had he also that that granddad had shares or a, a controlling role in a factory that used slave labor, a steel factory that used slave labor from Auschwitz. Right. This is the mm-hmm. Bush family we're talking yeah, yeah. about. Okay. You want to talk about the Clintons and, and, and what they did? Was it in Arkansas where they, had, they uh, controlled the runway that was importing cocaine from Central America? And, and then uh, the, the, cocaine, the very cocaine that caused, caused the crack ep- epidemic in America, yeah. right? That's yeah. another family again, right? These, these are the people that you go and vote for every, the, you know, Britain's the same, you know? Don't vote, folks. Don't keep voting in this corrupt system. Anyway, going back to that document, so you've got this project for the new American century. And, well, who are those individuals? Well, they're not patriotic Americans. Uh, they, uh, they are just a group of rogue, elitist businessmen that wrote that document, obviously, to shape the world in the way that they want it shaped so they can reap all the profits of the, you know, control the oil, control the, um, the drugs coming out of uh, Afghanistan and all this sort of stuff. So, sorry, I've just gone on a bit of a bit of a mad one then. Um, no, I think it's, it's important. People don't... It's really and this is not the American people and the same as it's not the British people. It's this little narcissistic, sociopathic group of uh, elitists isn't the right word, but they've got their own agenda. They control control the whole planet. They send our young men and women off to war to come back with their legs blown off and their eyes, you know, blown out or in in body bags. They don't care. And they don't care. And it's, it's less people like you and I, Tim, speak out about the reality of war, what it's really about, then, well, there's never going to be an end to it, is there? But it's hard, though, Chris, because, you know, we, I'm actually quite envious of the way America supports its service people. And what I mean by that is we don't do it like this in the UK. We do it very, we're very British, the way we support you know, our, our service people, aren't we? But America, you, everything, when I, when I'm on like an American podcast or, uh, I have a, an American, an American writes to me, they're always thanking me for my service. And I'm like, I was getting paid, you know, I, I got, I got paid. Don't worry about it. It's all good. They're like, no, thank you for your service. And it's a big thing with them. They're almost like, if you don't say that to an American serviceman, then, you know, there's something wrong with you. You know, you're a bad person. Um, I'm quite envious of the way they do support those people, but I know in doing so it's for a reason. So you're not going to get young people to go to these conflicts unless you have that level of support, unless you're telling them about the American flag, you know, about freedom. Well, that's a load of, I, I don't want to swear on your podcast here. I'm not going to swear on your podcast, but 
freedom america is the last america is the least free country i mean i'm not going to go on a rant right now but you know we can look at i mean look at america right now look what's happening in america right now and we're talking about freedoms and and so we've got to be very careful about the um the narrative that's espoused from our politicians and, and how we go about it but you know you've got to be able to send people to war and, and you're not going to be able to send people our age to war, Chris. Why? Because we, we think too much and because our brains are too developed, unfortunately. And, and young people, especially the people that write to me, you know, mm-hmm. thankfully, and I say thankfully, because I don't know how else we'd ever send people to war. You know, these guys are young. They're enthusiastic. They're like I was. They were like you were when you joined up the core. Um, and those are the guys you send out. And this, that's this always going to be um, People don't understand this whole thank you for your service, sir. It's a crock of shit. It's, it's a control game. It came around after Vietnam where Americans were so sick of having their young men, and it was young men in that war, not... not, yeah. not yeah. It might have been some women, but it was, they were so sick of them having... seeing them slaughtered, and yeah. they couldn't see a reason why. It's like well, why we had this 10-year war, yeah. body bags just coming back into the United States. What? It, what to fight over communism in a country where it's rice farmers they they earn like one dollar a year they they don't care if they're communist nationalist you know feminist they're just rice they don't care right so here's the thing these sociopaths that i was talking about thought ah the tide of public opinion not just in the u.s but worldwide is turning anti-war they're seeing the facade of it all. They're seeing the sham. Uh, that's kind of, I'll swear, that's fucked our global plan up for global dominance. And, and, and um, so what can we do? Ah, let's have a think. Right, I know what we do. Let's sell the public that they cannot criticise service people. Let's start coming up with some rhetoric like, uh, thank you for your service, sir. And let's put it across that if you say that you've been like really respectful to a serviceman, when in actual fact you're not, because what you're doing is perpetuating the myth that yeah. war is an honourable thing, that it's a good thing to go and kill other teenagers to make these psychos even more powerful, right? That is where that came around, right? It's the same as buy a serviceman a cup of coffee. It's also, you know, I've got to be careful what I say here, but. It's also why I, I personally, in my mind, I tread really carefully around things like Remembrance Day. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, what's oh, happening to our monuments yeah, and stuff, right? Because yeah. as much as, yes, of course, we respect the dead, that is why we are saying what we're saying now, because yeah. we genuinely respect the, the dead in our hearts. And, and this is what's coming out of our mouths putting a red thing on every year and going to memorial that also we got to be careful there because that has the effect of uh entrenching this hero myth yeah that's right entrenching heroic to go and die and heroic it's it and i'm not saying the individuals are not heroes as i say i love our servicemen and women I love all people. That's why I say what I say. But we've got to be careful to keep looking at, at wars as though it's freedom and democracy when it's not, when in actual fact, 
I think very few conflicts when it came down to it were about good and evil or freedom and democracy. You, you know, yeah, you're right. And I'm the same thing with the, especially with the poppies. I don't wear a poppy by the way. And I, I do get stick for that. And I, and I, I, I never really could articulate why I didn't wear a poppy because it's nothing disrespectful about it. But I realized, and I have realized over the last you know, couple of years, it's to do with the way the media has sensationalized Remembrance Day. I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to be part of, you know, I'm not having anything on my car. And, you know, even when it comes down to help the, hero, help the heroes, stickers on cars and things like that, or, or T-shirts and things, that help for heroes should have been a government service, not an, ind- you know what I mean? It's like, you can't send your men out, men and women out to conflict, come back. And then I remember Gordon Brown standing next to them, I think, when they'd first formed. It was either Help for Heroes or it was another one. I can't remember. Combat Stress or something, I think. And going, oh, we're really proud of these people for standing up this charity to help our service. And I'm like, you should have fucking done that, mate. That was your prime minister. That's the whole point. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't bring these people back and then, oh, are we going to pawn them off into the private sector so that they can get rehabilitative, you know, rehabilitation, rehabilitative care and stuff like this. Um, but with the poppy and with people remembrance days, and now it's on, you know, it's, it's so, it's so done, isn't it? It's so, it's a massive press thing. Oh, it's saccharine, you it, know. Tim, it's all, it's all just to support the narrative of war, that war is an honourable thing. And it's yeah. not, it's never about, it's very rarely about freedom and democracy. I don't know, you get conflict like the Falklands, which, yeah, okay. Yeah, that was, Personally, I think communication... Yeah, that would have worked better. And that would have worked, Chris. Communication yeah. was working. Communication... It wasn't few, given the time. A few sanctions put in the right places. Yeah. I think Argentina may well have... But I'm not going to... I don't want to sound like I'm slandering the, the my, no, no, God, my, no. my, my friends that went there and fought. Because yeah, yeah. yeah. I know they were, they were... Most of them were teenagers and they were, they were hard. They were hard as nails, those guys, you know? But you would have been there too. You know, you and I would have been there too. Of course yeah. we would have done. Oh, of course we would. And I, you know, and I, I I'd love the opportunity, you know, for me, that, crack on. I'd yeah. done that in a heartbeat, you know, but. Well, Tim, let, let's clarify here. We've both been in a form of combat, so we are allowed to speak our truth, right? I let anyone speak their truth, Chris. It doesn't matter whether the guys, anyone's got an opinion, I'll listen to it. All right. This is valid. You know, I mean, I think what's fortunate about you and I is that we spent time in the military and now we're talking about the military. So, Hopefully, people are listening to it going, well, I'm interested in that. It's got to be genuine. These guys know what they're talking about. But honestly, anyone writes to me, you know, I listen to everyone. And I, I think you do as well because, you know, you're a very open guy. Um, and I would just quickly say, I did serve with the US military in Afghanistan, um, obviously in Iraq as well, but primarily in Afghanistan. I was on a six-month ground tour of the US Army. I was the only British guy there. And the professionalism of of the US Army is just incredible. And the leaders that they have... So they're senior generals. The, the, the academic ability of these men and women, I'm not saying it outshines us. It doesn't. They have more of them is what I think it is. So you, you, you get a lot more from these very senior people. Um, they would have a conversation like we would have, like we're having now. They are very open, I, I think, personally, mm. to everything we are saying. In the middle ranks, of course, you don't really have time for that. So in your what would be your major ranks, you know, and, and your lieutenant colonel ranks. And th- those ranks where you're pushing into the, the sort of general, you really want to get up in the Air Force, we'd say, into a starred rank. You know, you, you haven't really got much time for a critical discourse. You, you like to think you have, but you're running squadrons, you're running a base, you're doing these kind of things. You like to think you have. I like to think I had as well. I was wrapped up like 
12, 15 hours a day on a flying training squad. And I had very little time to do much thinking, reading, yes, thinking, no. Now, of course, we have a lot more time. And these Americans that I worked with were just very, very aware. Uh, and I was very impressed. So I would say that about the US military. I was absolutely astounded. I didn't think I would be. And I was, I was very impressed by the senior and the very junior levels of the American military. Yeah. I love spending time with Americans. I, I, I just think they're such wonderful, wonder, wonderfully kind people. All the ones I've met, I've met a few assholes, but that's the same the world over, right? They're yeah, yeah, so, yeah. They are so generous and so kind. And they're so, it's like they want to learn about, for, for a country where, God, I'm starting to spit. <laughs> for, a, for a country that's kind of written up as like they don't know much about other countries and stuff. They remarkably are they're very open, you know. I think it's just their geography and their education is is kind of puts the blinkers on there a bit. But um, it's obvious what's happening in the world. The people of Britain, the people of America, and the wonderful people of Israel are are all being played off against each other by this sociopathic bunch of idiots that 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 no one ever reflects on because they're too busy going down to the voting polls to, and arguing about, you know, what Trump's doing next week or is Tony Blair better than, you know, Gordon Brown and falling for all the minutiae, all the, mm. all the yeah. theatre and the puppetry and the, what Sky News saying about, you know, David Cameron next. That, and it, you, we need to be looking at these people, not, not looking down all the time. And you and I see it, mate, but then again, yeah, we 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 we've trod down that path to enlightenment, haven't we? Because we knew we knew there was more in this life than what we what than what we'd been told. Yeah, I think it's important to get out of the military sometimes. I mean, I'll be honest with you. You know, the military's called me up and said, you know, we're desperate for instructors. Would you come back in? And you know, I struggle with that sometimes, especially now. The private sector's not doing very well. It's like, do I go back into the military? It's a hard one. And I'm not, this is why I don't have, I don't have a go at people in the military. I was there. You were there. We understand it, right? A lot of these people have young families and they're providing for their families. Totally get it. 110%. Let's not think the military are the people making these decisions to go to war as well, because we know they're not. And that's exactly what you just said. There is a, a there's a global structure loosely inhabited by politicians, of course, um, that make decisions to go into, into conflict. And unfortunately the tool they use is the military. So you know, I'm very supportive of people in the military, um, all public sector, really. It's not an easy place right now. But when I go back in now, I don't know. It's nice to be out and to be able to have these conversations. Well, it's the same if, you, you know, if you're in the Marines and let's just say you're getting 25000 a year. Yeah. And then suddenly a contract comes up in the Middle East doing, you know, or, or you know, in the Indian Ocean doing anti-piracy or, or protecting some you know, essential workers in Iraq or Afghanistan, whatever it might, and they're going to pay you 150,000 a year. I mean, what, and, and maybe you haven't done the thinking that you and I have done, Tim, because, you know, you've been yeah. in the military and I'll be honest, when I was in the military, I didn't really think like the way I think, thought now. I just, I thought about what am I doing at the weekend? Am I going to yeah. get pissed on Saturday night? Yeah. What, yeah. what mountain bike am I going to buy? You know, that's kind of like where my thinking was, right? Yeah. Um, it was through addiction, actually, which I think we're going to come on to, that, that I, 
I had to start thinking because I was going to die. No, no one can come and rescue an addiction. People, people can help. Essentially, you, you have to, you know, you've got to get yourself out of, of that trap, right? Yeah, that's right. But, um, yeah, so uh, it's the same, like I say, the security industry. You can't really blame someone for, for you know, going. The, the exact people that I'm talking about are the ones that really benefit from these security companies in the Middle East, aren't they, who are essentially protecting their assets. And it's just that same thing again that I, I, I don't really blame the individual. I, I just think it's the system. And we do think that, I mean, I do think individuals have responsibility though. I mean, I remember, you know, you watch Ant Middleton, Jason Fox, Ollie Ollerton, all those guys now have come out. People are coming out, they're writing books, they're doing their TV programs, whatever it is. <clears throat> I do think you've got to accept the bed you make is the one you lie in. And if you want to go forth and push a narrative of, you know, armed conflict is the way forward, well, you're going to be judged on that as well. I don't push that by the way. You know, I do say to people that want to join the military, it's a pretty good career don't stay too late, you know, have a plan, um, get in there, get what you need to get done and get out again and do something worthwhile with your time. So, I mean, there are people come out they, with sensationalist books. I mean, it's very interesting. You look, I think we do it here in the UK. We do it stateside as well with Jocko Willink and David Goggins. And there's a lot of people that come out. Navy SEALs seem to write quite a lot, don't they? For some reason, I don't know. Um, they seem to write everything, but, um, there are some people coming out and there is, there's some very mature narrative coming out now about these conflicts that we've been fighting. Do you think so? I find, and I'm not going to pick any individual. Yeah, go on, that's, go on. that's not my, my thing, but I find with these former Navy SEALs, when just when you're building a bit of rapport with the, this guy's narrative and then they come out with some shit like, yeah, and then we got the bad guys. And you're like, yeah, that's oh, right. Fucking God. Yeah, well, are they not playing to their audience, though, Chris? This is what I find as well. It's like, I don't want to hear that, you know, but there are people that want to hear it. So um, one of the best books I recently read was about a guy called Chapman, who was um, who was a guy that was killed. He, I think he got two... I'm going to find his book right now because I, I've, I want to get the title of this book. I'm going to go quick on Amazon here and just get the title of this book down because I think people... I read this book. I started out a new workout thing because I was deep into... Um, coming out of the military problems with uh, alcohol and all these kind of things. And so I, I started this huge workout thing. I listened to this book about this guy whilst working out and you know, you, you can't help but have a good workout listening to what, what this guy did and what young guys like him did. And I think in that respect, um, let me just find out what it's called. There are, there are from the U S military. Uh, well, while you do that, I'm just going to hit the pause button because um, I need to go and punch an elephant. Okay. Uh, so just bear with me. No worries. Okay, that, that wasn't an elephant. That was a water buffalo. And that's when things get really messy, folks. That's, that's what happens sometimes. Um, so the book is uh, a book called Alone at Dawn. And I, so I'm not, so a lot of what comes out of the, of the US military is, I would say, quite sensationalist. I think we've kind of touched upon that now. But this is a story of um, a Medal of Honor recipient, John Chapman. I think he was going to get two Medals of Honor, if that was possible. But he was a special ops combat controller in Afghanistan. And he ends up charging um, some hill. The whole operation is an absolute gate. I don't know whether you guys use that, t- that term as well. Um, it was flawed from beginning to end. I think it was quite early on in Afghanistan. Right? Goat. We, okay, we call it a, I goat. I always think Freemasons because that's their 
mascot, isn't it? Oh, is it really? No, we call it a rolling goat. Like a goat starts rolling down a hill. It's like, yeah, everything's falling apart. Um, but they end up being inserted on the wrong hill. You know, you can imagine what's happening. He's a combat controller embedded with US Navy SEALs. Uh, and they end up with this gunfight going on where everyone's getting shot up. Um, I think uh, a Chinook gets um, hit by an RPG when it's on the ground and abandoned. And the whole thing is in the wrong place, the wrong time, and the whole operation should have been scrubbed. Like, it shouldn't have happened. Notwithstanding that, the heroic actions of this one guy, you can't read about him and think you know, what he what happened and what he did was just truly amazing. So Alone at Dawn is the book. If you read it as an audio, if you get it as an audio book as well, I like audio books, like when I'm in the car. That's an amazing story. So I'm guessing the guy's dead. The guy died. Did he? Guy did die. Yeah, but I mean, it took him, you know, a good twelve hours. I mean, he took a load of rounds and he fought throughout. They actually abandoned him, thinking he was dead, and then had to come back because he wasn't, and yeah, uh, he was I, dead. But I might, you might do, I might even do a reaction video to that. Because- oh yeah, I tell you what. I, after this, I'll send you the video of him, the Medal of Honor. There was a Predator drone over the top of it, um, filming the whole time, and it's got the. It's obviously at night, so you have the shapes moving around. And it describes the guy who actually made the videos, Dan Schilling, one of the authors of the book. And um, he, des- he, does, he describes the movement of this guy up this hill, and he's, he's outmaneuvering his, uh, his, his team to get in a position where he can protect them from the bunker that's pouring um, you know, uh, fire down from RPGs and, and all sorts of things. So I'll send, you that, I'll send you that film. It's on YouTube, and then you could do a reaction on, on that. Yeah. Maybe have a look at the book and and then and then talk about that that book. I think you'd um I think you'd be uh it's, the reason I talk about it here, Chris, is that I'm very careful not to belittle the achievements of the U.S. military. I'm not here putting the U.S. military or the British military anyone down. It's like we do what we need to do and we do it so well. And it is it is awful that there are lives lost. That's not, that's that's not the issue. It's like I'm proud to have served, and my brother is proud to have served. My father served. You're you know you're proud to serve. Now let's have the conversation about whether we should have been in those conflicts because yeah. people did die. You know that's that's what I'm saying. It's like never not, don't miss the debrief. You know what I mean? It's not just that they died, Tim. Is it? It's that the world now is a far more dangerous place because of what's yeah. going on in the Middle East. It's an out, we, we actually do now face threats at home, which were fictitious before. We never, you know, they were they possible, but unlikely. Now, the anger that this, the outrage this, that this is uh, instilled in, in, let's say, young Muslim men in this country has created a, a, a real... And that's not fair on those young men. It's not fair on our young people. And it's not fair on the people in the Middle East that have had to have this, um, you know, all this ordinance dropped on them and their infrastructure ripped out. And Yeah, that's right. Um, but that's how, you get, that's how you get American money or British money into the country. And that's how you get these companies going in there and fixing these things. And that's just the racket it is. I mean, when, when Saddam Hussein was removed... When we're into Iraq, of course, you leave through regime change. You leave this vacuum, and that's what happened. And then everyone comes in to fill that vacuum, don't they? And that was that was the the issue. Now you have many different factions, and the whole thing ends up so complicated; it's unworkable. Um, yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. No, I, I I absolutely congratulate you for your honesty, mate. It 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 it's so refreshing to you know, to have it come from a guest rather than it always feels top down from me. And so then I feel like shutting up about it because, you know, 
Oh, no, I remember. Before we went, we were one of the first squadrons to go out to Afghanistan back in 2003. One of the first tornado squadrons. There were only tornadoes in country at the time. And I think the Harriers were in Afghanistan at the time. We were tornadoes in Iraq. One of the first squadrons. And I remember a solicitor coming to the squadron. Um, She was external. She came on. The Ministry of Defense had sent her. And she sat us all down, like the whole squadron, boss and everything. And she said, if you drop in country, um, remember it was about the UN resolution that we're using back from uh 1991 or something trying to use the same one weren't we saying it's still valid still valid it's like and the un won't grant us what you needed uh and she said if you drop in country uh, there's every chance you're going to be held up in a civilian court of law on your return and i'm like but i've got a bomber going out there there's there's uh, 12 jets there or whatever and they're tooled up i mean these things have you know these things are not toys right our job is to go out there and destroy a lot of a lot of targets because that's the mindset we're in we must go out there and bomb things and she says just letting you guys know that when you come back if you do drop out in country uh you'll probably be out in a, in a civilian court of law now we had um we had a, a, a like a flow chart on our kneeboard that we used to fly with because of this and when a call came in from something called chariot chariot was the higher authority and it would say chariot directs wolf three four to proceed to this kill box to do you go through this thing and you say have we been Order, do we have authority? What is this? And you go through these steps and it, it would minimize the chance of you being brought up in a civilian court of law on your return. Isn't that incredible? So I had a tank commander I knew as well, and he phoned me up before I went out there and he said, I'm pushing across the border right now. What's the feeling back home? And I said, dude, it's like you're not you're not allowed. It's like back home, we haven't got a resolution for you to enter the country. And he's like, Well, we're you know, we're 20 miles south of Baghdad right now. What's it it's, it's, it was that. It was crazy. It was crazy. And uh, I'm not saying I laugh about it now, but I remember getting into the country and there being American assets in there and everything. And I remember my navigator and me thinking, we've got to be really careful. We don't actually drop anything here. In fact, that particular day uh, I talked about in Amara when those three young men died, um, I had a, a squadron exec in the back seat of my airplane. So he was a flight commander. I, I ended up being a flight commander. A flight commander is someone, there's the boss, then there's three flight commanders, and there's senior ranks, and then there's all the pilots and ground crew and everything else. He was a flight commander on my squadron, and he said, um, I'll never forget this, as we pushed up to the, uh, the, where all the bombing had happened, he flew over the top and he said, Tim, there's a lot to be said for not being the first aircraft to drop in a combat theatre. And that, that he was one of the execs. He's like the, 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 the deputy boss. And at that time, you know, I'm this young kind of, what was I, maybe 30-year-old combat pilot, want to put some stuff down, I want to sort the boys out. And he's like, there's a lot to be said for not being that first person to drop. And now he's right, Chris. He's absolutely right. You know, you you want to let someone else do that first and and see what happens to them. And that's because you haven't got, you don't feel assured by your chain of command. That's that's because they don't feel assured by it. You know, that's, that's the truth. It's time. a title for a good book, isn't it? A, 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 a funny thing happened when we went to war. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but no one would believe it, would they? That's the thing. <laughs> Tim, let's, you've been very uh, honest already about we're talking about the drugs and alcohol thing. So I'm just going to make a note of the time here. Um, yes. Alcohol, very... If it's not a big problem in the forces, which it kind of is, it certainly seems to create big problems for us guys when we leave, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I've done a load of work into this. I run a program with individuals now called the Total Control Method because I, I believe that 
and we're going to differ on this, Chris, and that is fine. And I, and I know we're going to differ because I differ with my sisters and my my brother and my parents, and I differ with a lot of people that have gone through um, uh, substance misuse because I believe that there is a control element that we we that that, that control element can sometimes be stronger than the abstinence. Now, a lot of people will say it doesn't work for me, and that's fine. A lot of people it doesn't work for, but for some people it does. And there's actually a movement; it's quite big in America that looks at control alcohol use as a and they use it they control their alcohol use even though they have dependencies on it mm. i'm one of those people right so um so i came out of the military and yeah alcohol for me wasn't great when it was in the military because everyone's using it and we do and then coming out of the military it got it, when you come out of the military that structure's gone it's very easy to just get in that habit of sitting on your sofa for me having a few beers i put on loads of pounds and now i'm getting rid of all that and i'm i'm proud of myself for the work i'm doing on me and I help other people through a course I call, uh, I run called the Spin Recovery Program. Uh, I've just taken six guys through that course, all guys, by the way, all in their 40s and 50s. And we talk um, about a lot of things that affect, tends to affect men of our age, uh, women as well. But it just so happens that I think men get to a point in their 40s where they're like, what is it about? What am I doing? You know what I mean? Um, it's kind of based in Buddhism, Buddhism philosophy, but it also comes into a lot of Jungian philosophy as well by Carl Jung stuff like that about personal responsibilities so I did come out I had problems with alcohol most definitely 100% hands up um I took a whole year off back in 2017 where I didn't drink anything went straight back to it you know like you do and I was always taught as a naval officer of course and you're probably aligned with this a little bit that it was about hard drinking in the evening and you still come to work and you get in your jet and you get the job done that's it so I don't want to hear excuses you sh- you've got to be in the bar it's like, all right, I'm in the bar every night. You know, that's where the learning took place. After a flight, you go to the bar. That's what everyone did. Um, and you talk about your trips. You talk about your flight. That's where the debrief happened. You know, that's what it's all about. Smash the beers in. Good times, then get me wrong. Um, and then I realized it's a bit of a problem. And if you, family history, uh, my father was alcoholic um, towards the end of his life. It killed him at 65, really. It wasn't alcohol so much, but emphysema from being on warships with his asbestos and he had a rebreather accident when he did um uh, special boat training back in late 60s i think it was and that really ripped up his lungs you know so he wasn't the healthiest guy when it came to you know, the end of his police career but um so he was alcoholic mum was alcoholic you know people within our family have had problems with alcohol extended family it just seems to be that thing that we have you know there's depression within our family as well um to a certain extent my sister's a psychiatrist i think you're yeah. A, a nice enough and kind enough man that I can respectfully challenge you here. Could we say there were people that had problems with alcohol as opposed to calling them alcoholics? Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm not. I, I'm, so in America, they call it alcohol use disorder. And I'm we're not trying to be pedantic and I'm not being rude. No, go on. My guess it's just the biggest problem I faced in my whole experience of addiction, which still goes on to today. Yeah, yeah. And for your just. Going back to what you said, I've never been abstinent. I've never, I've never ever tried to be. I, I took two years off drinking once, which was my choice. Yeah. And I found it quite actually easy to just not drink because my life was so brilliant during that time, right? Yeah. But going back to my, my challenges, my problem wasn't with the kind of levels of depredation my life sunk to through substance abuse, right? My problem came in was the way society dealt with me, the way I was viewed, the way I'm still viewed today, whereas, where, and, 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 and here's the thing, right? 
and apologies to people listening. This is not Chris blowing his trumpet or whatever, but as I'm always saying, I'm, I'm a pilot, skydiver, best-selling author. I've lived, worked and traveled in 80 countries across all seven continents. I've achieved every single dream and goal in my life. I'm undoubtedly the happiest person I ever meet, right? And by happy, I mean balance, right? I'm not always yeah, like yeah, la- yeah. laughing, right? I have the most awesome family I only could have dreamt about um, when, I, when I was young. I literally love every single day. Um, I've, I've worked with, you know, street kids in post-war Mozambique. I've driven volunteer journalists to India and back by bus. I, I've screamed my ass off throwing myself out of military aircraft, right? I basically just had the most amazing life, all of which off my, you know, nobody gave it to me. I created all of this, right? Yeah. Same as when I write my book, I put the words, I don't get a ghostwriter to do it for me. Yeah, yeah. My YouTube channel, I started it. I learned like what that thing does and why I needed it. And I, yeah. paid, I paid the money from my savings for it. I learned what that thing there is, what that thing there is, what that box there with, with about 6,000 pounds of equipment, all of which I paid for out my savings, right? Here's the thing, all those things, Still get people out there, Tim. Oh, you're a drug addict. Right? I, I'm not talking about slagging me off here or anything. Now. What I mean is they genuinely think it's appropriate to refer to me with this one label instead of all the other things I've just listed. You know, you could say, yeah. oh, Chris, you're, you're the, the, the pilot or you're the author. Oh, Chris, are you? No. It, right? And here's the thing, it doesn't bother me, of course it doesn't. I'm, I'm I'm 50 years old. I couldn't I couldn't care less, but what it does is it upsets me that we're still referring to people by their mental health condition. Because if you went up to someone and said, Oh, I heard you're a cancer, everyone in that room would turn around and pummel you into the ground for for the, I'm not talking to you, Tim, I'm talking to, to the Yeah, no, I get you. You know. Everyone would turn around and kick the fucking shit out of you, right? Quite rightly so, because you'd never refer to someone with cancer as being a cancer, whereas you refer to someone who's battling a horrible condition called addiction, which is not their fault. It's generally a result, uh, it, the driver of addiction for the most part is childhood trauma. So not only do they have a fucking tough time when they're a kid, they're still and they didn't ask for that because they're a child, right? They're still yeah, yeah. battling with it as a 50-year-old adult, right? This is this this guy you see here. And what's the one thing you do? Rather than big them up and big up their self-confidence and their persona and their, and their achievements in life, no, you call them the – we use the one name of, 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 like, the biggest thing that's wrong, you know, the worst thing they've ever had to face. So um, this is not – not at all having a go at you, Tim. I just want to make the point for people at home. The language we use is so powerful in keeping people in oppression. Yeah, and, it keeps people down, yeah. You know, let's, let's, and, and I just want to kind of make it a bit of a, not a mission of mine as such, but I just want to enlighten people where possible to the inappropriateness of the language they, you know, the language they use. It's, it's no different. You say, "Ah, oh, she's a whore." It's 
do you mean she's like actually a professional that makes her living by selling sex? There's that, you know, the, the power language has that one of those statements has a position to make that woman the worst thing in the world. The other has the position to actually make it quite an intellectual, clever business person. <laughs> um, so, but Chris, right. I mean, you're talking about idiots a lot of the time here. I mean, we're, we're placing too much value into some individuals. That that do, I'm a big fan of the, the issue with labelling, and I think you're talking about the same thing. Sometimes I get it. What, one of the things I used to get, this is before I left the military, um, and my wife would say this, she'd, she'd say, you hate your job. Now, we understand that's something called projection, don't we, sometimes, where we can project onto other people. And if she didn't like her job, she might want to project onto me, like, you hate your job. And it wasn't necessarily a projection. But I used to say to her, I don't hate my job. I find it really, really, really frustrating. It's incredibly tiring. It's it's wrecked my neck. I'm like a giraffe, you know. And now, I, luckily, she's a chiropractor. You know, I'm a sensible guy. But um, it's, you know, fighter pilot marries chiropractor. It, it kind of works out quite well. Um, but the, I used to say to her, "Look, don't label me with stuff. All right, you don't need to. I can tell you what I am. I'm a frustrated fast jet pilot who's struggling against a system." That doesn't seem to be want to want to be accountable for itself, you know. I and mean, we're privatizing military flying training, and it's a problem. And we don't say it. So, I think what you're saying, when I might say someone's alcoholic or something, I, I don't I don't necessarily label someone like that. I don't see alcoholism as the the issue. I see um, societal factors as the the causation of the addiction, not the addiction being the problem. The, yeah, the addiction is, you know. I think um, think Jordan Peterson once said it. Um, he was talking about one of his patients. Obviously, he was a psychiatrist, and he was saying he had a patient, and he was like, you, you don't have depression. You just have a really shit life. You know, it's like you're not depressed. Like, everything in your life is just rubbish and hard and difficult. <laughs> you know, and this guy's got, I'm so depressed. He's like, you're not, you're not depressed. It's like your marriage is falling apart. You, you, you just lost your job. You know, you're drinking too much. You're overweight. It's like anyone like you would be feeling sad. It's like, you know, you just got a shit life. So um, I look at that when I, when, I, when I work with these individuals and some of them are, you know, very senior people in industries and stuff. When we work about alcohol as part of their life, we, we, we break this down. We talk about labels. We talk about like what you're saying, what people say to them. We talk about their lifestyle, what's happening in their world and why they feel that alcohol needs to be a part of that. It's a very easy part, alcohol. It's very acceptable. I mean, you can find it anywhere, can't you? I went, when I, when I wasn't drinking in 2017, because obviously when, when we're drinking, because when we, when we have these addictions or, or when we have these, these, these props, shall we call it, these things that we just seem to have to have, um, we're very conscious of going somewhere new because you have to have access to it. We all understand that. It's like someone says, do you want to go camping? You're like, well, not really, because I'm not too sure there's a bar anywhere. You know, you know how that is. Um, in 2017, I did this thing where I went, well, I don't care because I'm not drinking at all. Anyway, it doesn't matter where I go. And there wasn't a single night where I couldn't have got alcohol if I wanted it. Everywhere I traveled, everywhere I went, it was available everywhere. I mean, literally everywhere. It was amazing to see. Um, and it just is now. So if you're trying to stop something like that, it's there constantly mm. everywhere. It's, it's incredible. So I, I do advocate control. Um, why, I do. Tim, yeah. why did, why did you say you feel most people would disagree with you is that with the control see so, so for example there's um people in recovery in my family and uh they don't believe that you can control uh, alcohol so they think you either stop it or not everyone controls alcohol by the way to some if you've stopped alcohol you're controlling it okay of course you are of course you are um 
I just up until the time to, you don't. I just wanted to say that that's that's my philosophy. Right. Okay. See, I and this is, again. I don't know whether we will get on with this. Obviously, I think we are getting on, and we're more aligned. We don't need to be aligned, Chris, but I think we're more aligned in what we're saying than I thought we would be. However, um, one of my things is. I felt alcohol had beaten me when I stopped drinking in 2018. I felt really subservient to the fact that, you know, I've, I've stopped drinking for a whole year. I've stopped it. It's like alcohol's won. Now by controlling alcohol and, de- and deciding when I drink or don't drink, and it might be months might go past, weeks, days, you know, it could be anything, but I decide. I'm in control and it's very empowering to me to be in control of something that I felt I wasn't necessarily in control of before. Now I can decide. And someone can come along and go, do you want a beer, Tim? And I'm like, actually, no. Because for me, like many people, one beer has to be 12. You know, it's not enough. I don't understand people that have a beer at lunchtime. I'm not that person. I can't, you know. Well, I can, but I'll just be miserable forever, you know. So for me, and that's a very military thing, isn't it? You don't go for a beer. You don't no, go for No, I, I'm, I'm completely with you. Um. Yes, and I no, I, I everything you're saying is like it's like you're talking my story. Um, right, I I'm exactly all these things. I've got myself into a position where I have I don't drink for the most part. Right, I don't drink because my life is just so much better without it. Yeah. I don't drink because when I wake up in the morning after drinking, I feel like I've poisoned myself. So that by definition makes it a bit stupid to poison myself. Right. I would love, I mean, I drank for, I drank and did drugs for 30 years. You know, it wasn't always the heavy stuff. It might be a joint, you know, a joint. and, And sometimes it was like 12 beers in the evenings. We're talking 12 tinnies now, you know? And I, I mean, it was normal. I, I, no, it wasn't normal. It was completely abnormal. But I was a single guy. I could get away with it, right? I, I you know, hate to use yeah. the cliche, I work. But the thing is, I was a writer. So I could drink when I wrote. It, there was nobody. That's right. Know, yeah, I mean, that's right. And here's the thing is now, when I get on it, so to speak, it's that little voice in your head that says, yeah, nice cold beer be nice in this sun. And I know when that thought comes in, it, it's never just going to be a, a nice cold beer. For a start, I'd never have one, you know. That's right. I, I want to have at least four before I sort of even feel a bit merry, right? But then I get on like this, this ride where I have to keep feeding the bear so I don't get the come down. Yeah. And in my form, that will be like... uh I'll wake up in the morning and I'll grab that beer that was left over from last night and crack down it. Brilliant. Don't, don't feel anywhere near as good as when I had that beer yesterday. It's a bit like the chasing the crack cocaine thing. The first hit is like, wow, man, that was blown my bloody socks off. The next one isn't quite as good. Then, And the thing with the drinking is I, I fall in. I have to see this pattern through to come back out the other side. Right. And I've got it in the bag. Believe me, I've done this so many times now. So this myth of one drink and you, you can't go. No nonsense. You, you, you can control it. 
the, the point for me is, is I can control it to a point, right? And I'm well aware when that point is. So for me, that binge will be like a three-day thing. Yeah, so it goes by on for three days. By the third day, I'm so fed up with this behavior. It's so fucked up my perfect life now. Yeah. You know, I'm feeling shit. I've lost what I call my kundalini high, so my serpent power. So I'm not on clouds anymore like I usually am. I've right. come down, and I'm kind of like on the normal level, probably like a lot of people feel in their everyday life. Yeah, makes sense. I've gone off my alkaline diet, which is really important to me. So that's, you you know, fresh greens all the time. So again, my high has come down. My sleep is fractured. I'm now having to work, not not pissed, but under the influence. And so you start to make professional decisions, which they're not that clever. And boy, have I made some stupid ones, right? On top of that, of course, alcohol root, affects your relationship so my relationship with my family now is suffering whether i like it or not it, it in some way it is suffering yeah, whether it's sense. that you're too huggy and you're too happy or whether it's that the 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 ant the ante to that is that you've got a bloody bad temper what whatever it's uh, so i get that three-day kick up the ass wake up call and that's all i need tim is to go right that's the last one. And, and this is, this is the level of control I've developed yeah. after having no control, really. Mi- yeah. Not no control. Let's say minimal. Control. Yeah. Cause I've yeah. had professional jobs, so I couldn't go to work pissed. I'd just be yeah, that right. drinker in the evening. Like a lot of people are now. I, that, that was, you know, when you, when I, when I work in an office, you can't, well, you can go in there pissed, but I mean, I've ne- never really, did that uh but come that evening you try driving past the off license on your way home and going no 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 and this is stuff i've had to develop i had to i had to say right how can i stop myself going to right what am i right repetition chris you're not going to like it chris it's going to cost you this chris it's going to cost you this chris it's going to do that and through that process and a whole load of other stuff i won't won't go on about now but you know i've developed the level of control where very rarely drink now when i do it it's 50 percent choice it's 50 percent that little voice that goes go on it'll be all right you know i'm i'm just trying to be honest with people here. yeah no it is honest that that last bit is very honest as you know, well it's not always yeah do i enjoy it as much as i think the first couple are nice I'll say that, you know, I normally go, um, yeah, I know the, the, the first couple, they're, they're okay. Next morning, then you start like chasing the dragon basically. And then it all becomes by that stage, I'm thinking, Ugh. and in case someone's wondering, well, Chris, why don't you just have the evening and stop? It's because I feel so shit in the morning that I've got a day of fucking work ahead. I've got to work. I've got people to speak to. I've got phone calls. I've got editing. My day is, and I've got my writing, right? I can't be feeling shit because if I'm not like on some kind of buzz, it all just becomes too unfulfilling and hard. And yeah, absolutely. You know, 
have that one in the morning and and then I'll crack on with my day. But I, that now the voice is going, this has got to stop, Chris. This, you know, and, and it does. And it does. And like I say, three days, is, I kind of wean, yeah. kind of wean myself off it to him in that three day. So, uh, yeah, that's my uh, table laid out for you. <laughs> no, it's valid. I mean, and that's it. I think what's powerful, what you said there was... Um there still is that voice, although you, you're in a controller. And I think that's what a lot of people would, would admit to, or you know, hopefully admit to, is that although we control it, there's a vulnerability about it, you know? Um, and it's different for different people. I never like drinking with people. I like drinking by myself, to be honest. I like, you know, I do a lot of reading, do a lot of writing. Uh, so I'm happy to sit somewhere and have a beer and do some writing, you know? The writing's never as good, but it seems to come a lot easier. It seemed to, but it's never as good. I read back on some essays I wrote. I know exactly which ones I wrote when I wasn't drinking, which ones I wrote when I was. And now I've gone back and corrected all the ones that, you know, I wrote when I was drinking because it just didn't flow as well. Or the, the, the ideas were kind of all over the place, you know, that sort of thing. But for me, um, my dad was, so he comes from family, isn't it? My dad was a big beer guy and a big whiskey guy. And, and that's what he did when he came back from clearing up road accidents. He was a traffic officer. He's an arm response traffic officer. And he'd come back in the evenings. The first thing he'd do was crack his beer open, pour a whiskey, Daily Mail. That's what he'd do. And he'd sit there. It was his decompression, Chris. That's how he decompressed from clearing up dead bodies on the roads or, you know, going and telling someone that a loved one had died um, in a road accident. He decompressed. Now, when you're growing up and you see that, as you said, a repetition, you see it all the time. That's just what you end up doing. That's, that's what I end up doing. And that's what I ended up doing is coming back from work, that's done now. The day's over. I can crack a tin open. Now I got on my evening. And I did that for a very long time in the military. And I think a lot of people did that for a long time in the military. I didn't have a family. Family never got in the way. A lot of these men, women, family did get in the way and they never did. So they, they managed to wean it off. And now for me, there's some places that, for example, I'm a big fan of um, German culture and Berlin and Munich. And I, you know, we go there quite a bit. And I, I like the German beer scene and, and I like all that so for me but you know by controlling this now means that I can go and have a beer in the tear garden and I can sit there in the summer and that's fine that's all right so by stopping it completely takes a big part of life out I feel and it's just I'm just trying to you know this is what I tell people that I I talk with as well is you don't have to stop and relinquish that control element to alcohol and then and I won't mention names, but I've got people that I know, family members um, that go to AA uh, and they, they teach in AA um, and they spend more time in AA than they ever did drinking. So, and I say, so well, hang on a second, you say you stopped drinking, but you're spending more time talking about drinking than you did when you were drinking. So really who's in control of alcohol then? You know, that's how I look at it. I've but done, think- I've actually done some work for AA as a, as a professional now we're talking yeah. about. Um, I've never been to, I think I went to one AA meeting way back along. I knew it wasn't going to work before I went through the door. By the time I came out the door at the end of the evening, I definitely knew it wasn't going to work. You know, no one's going to tell me I'm a broken machine. Absolutely well, not. Well, that's, that's you know, it. Yeah, you yeah. tell me I'm, I've got a disease. I just tell you to fuck off and get a light. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's alco- uh, alcoholism and addiction. It's, a learned psychological condition. That's all it is. You know, the rat in the cage see, knows if he pushes that button, he gets the food pellet. So what does he do? He pushes that button. Yep. You take the food away. What's the rat do? We 
still pushes the button. That in that, if you can understand that that little uh, example, that that's addiction. It's it's continuing to do the thing long after the thing really works for you. Yeah. And it's because our our brain is as a human, as a primate, we're very programmed the the reward mechanism. We want rewards and we don't want to do a lot for it. And alcohol is that perfect, gives you a great reward because you feel mental, all your stress goes, and you can, you know, bloody feel sociable, whatever it is. Um so but going back to the AA thing, as much as that organization has professed to help people, I think they've also done just irreparable damage by not modernizing and by sticking to this, yeah, the old to the old unscientific uh, methodology and language yeah. that was used when people didn't have science, right? And the book's the same, isn't it? Then change yeah. the book. Oh, yeah. I really, it really is unhelpful that they've sold people on this word clean. Mm. Anyone that's go, gone through the NA program, yeah, I'm clean. I wish they could understand the damage that they're doing, the stigma they're creating for mental health by using such a horrible word to describe, you know, I'm clean. I, what, what, what you're essentially saying, I, I was dirty. Yeah, that's right. No, nah, nothing dirty about mental health nothing most people will go through some sort of experience at some time in their life and i challenge anyone to want to be called dirty because of it right yeah yeah um, and and so yeah in the end the other thing is you've said this this thing that oh, i want you know once a problem always a problem well what about for those of us that have proved that yeah, that's not. not you know yeah that's right Irregardless of, I mean, I like I say, I choose not to drink now. I just think my life's better. Yeah. I'm not saying I never will. I might maybe next week I'll go and have a, a beer and I'll do that right. thing or what. I might even you choose do it. it. Yeah. What, what? What? But but do I want to be told that I've got absolutely no control and da 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 da? No, because it's not true. What kind of life is that? Can yeah. you imagine living under that life where you, you're on a knife edge the whole time because you might have a drink and then your world's going to fall apart but i do understand tim we also we must recognize sorry i know i'm talking a lot on your your podcast but we also got to recognize yes if you're at a stage where you're drinking yourself to death and and my two of my best friends now i've watched them drink themselves to death i've physically seen them go into hospital seen their organs pack up and kiss them goodbye you know that's my two best friends not not people i know best friends right i get it i wish they'd gone to aa oh yeah i wish they'd gone and done that thing because you know they were dying and when you've got that lack of control in your life and you realize your family's suffering your children are going to get abused because by definition addiction is abusing you know it it results in abuse then I can understand why people get scared and they just do the first thing that comes to hand or, or the most pragmatic thing maybe is they go to one of these um, fellowships, right? I get that. I, I, and I wouldn't stop anyone doing it. I just wish that they would update their language. So it wasn't so stigmatizing for, for people experiencing mental health conditions. Mm. And yeah. I wish that they would understand that, 
it's a learned psychological condition and as such it can be unlearned it's that it's it's hard to unlearn it because as you get older and you've done this drink thing for 20 years or 30 years the plasticity in your head start allegedly can start to to uh harden and your neural pathways become more fixed so it becomes hard to unlearn it but it doesn't mean it can't be done because you know we're, we're kind of you know we're we're proof of that and the fact that i might drink beer next year or next week where, where, where does that in any way ruin my life no it slows my work down it might make me a bit of a dick to my my partner and my child mm, yeah um not to the point of being abusive i like to think um you, you know what I'm trying to say is I I I I love my life, Tim. You know I just love my life, and I just I think part of the reason I love my life is I've never gone to these extremes of putting putting rules on myself. You know, especially if they're other people's rules. Yeah, no, I do get that. Sorry, mate. I don't even know if I'm making sense now. Just... No, no, no. I do, I do get it. I do get it. I, I brought in exercise because I think that's important. I think it's something we lack and I was lacking it. You know, when you, I look out, I mean, in the Marines, I guess, you know, you, you get a lot of time to hit the gym, but in the Air Force, we never really did because it's full on, you know, it's a full on job. Um, so it's always in your own time. And of course, when you finished, if you do two sorties a day, the last thing you want to do is go and throw yourself around a gym in the evening. It's just, just shattered. You know, there's nothing left. It's like, you're lucky to be able to get home half a time. You know what I mean? It's like, body's broken um so in the military but it's a quite a fast paced life as well so it's you know you, the weight stays off because you're always moving around you're doing like twenty thousand steps a day you're on the squadron you know that kind of stuff so you're fine you come out it becomes very sedentary and when i came out the first year i had an office job for six months on a contract sitting there doing that you know nothing tangible coming out of that whatsoever because it pays well and you think this could be my life here couldn't it you put a bit of weight on you're not eating healthy it wasn't i wasn't doing much exercise living in hotels you know beers in the evening all that stuff and I've started to change that now. And in the um, when I do coach people, we talk about bringing exercise in as a as like a, a non-negotiable. It's like you are. This is what you're doing now. Every day you're doing something. You haven't got to get changed into your gym kit. Couldn't care less. But you are going to get those ten thousand steps done. Or you are. I mean, for me, I wake up. The first thing I do, I put habit. I habit stack. Chris, I don't know whether you know this. Um, James Clear on the internet. He does habits. Uh, he's got a book out about habits in America. He says to stack habits. So uh, I never used to floss my teeth. And then I started going to a hygienist. She says, you've got great teeth. You need to kind of floss. So now, well, when do you floss? So now what I do is I, I put that in with, you always brush your teeth when you wake up. Everyone does that. Wake up, brush teeth. So now what I do is I wake up, floss, brush teeth. And then the exercise goes on the end of that. First thing I do is I get out into my, into my, my garage. I've got a makeshift gym in there. And I'm doing either on the rowing machine. Where am I? Down here. There's a, a rowing machine there. It's a kilometer, it's a water rower. I'm a chairman of a rowing club for some reason. I don't know why I'd ever do that, but I am. So I you know, do 20 minutes on that, 20 minutes in the garage. And every single day, I'm, I'm filling out a card, like an exercise card like that. 40 minutes daily exercise every day. I don't want to, I don't want to see any gaps there. This is what I tell people. No, no, you're going to have a card like this. You're going to fill it out. You're going to put a cross in the card. No, no gaps. No gaps. You can carry it on to another card if you want. You can do the same thing with... With, with drinking and or not drinking for weeks, we can do this. All my clients do these things. We do them all together. 
Um, and so what, what I say to my guys first is carry on drinking, literally drink for this long. Okay. I want you to carry on drinking for this long, but every day you're doing some exercise and we can talk about what that exercise is. You can do whatever you want. One of my guys, he's very overweight. Uh, he, he wants to start running. He's going to bust his knees up. He starts running. He's like 260 pounds. So we're getting him to walk. You know, he's doing the whole walking around the block, going exploring the local area first thing in the day finding different parts he hasn't seen before. Uh, and he's going to do that. He's still drinking and he's round about down here. And when we get to the end of this, he's been doing exercise every day. Well, strange enough, we then address the alcohol. So what we've done is we brought in healthy habits alongside the drinking. You start to feel better, don't you? You're eating the greens like you're talking about. You're getting the alkaline thing. You're, you're bringing nutrients into your body, which you weren't doing before because when we drink, we make really poor choices. As you've said before, we eat bags of crisps in the evening. We're just, our diets are rubbish. We don't even look at our macros, you know, horrible stuff. Now we've got seven weeks to, to, look, to address all that. We can have that conversation whilst you're drinking. And that's what we do. And it's great. It's a great conversation. Why? Because they're still drinking. They're not in that kind of, that whole status of, oh, what am I going to do? Because within four days of stopping drinking, it's out of your system. The rest of it's there. It's mental. There's nothing left in you alcohol wise. So how are we being affected by alcohol? You know, and this is the conversation. Then we start talking about uh, working through um, not abstinence-based recovery, but control-based recovery, where we just we just take it, we talk it through, and you know what, we carry on that exercise as well. And people get really into it, which I think is great. I yeah. think that's what people do. God, I wonder if there's some room for some partnership work there because um, I'm uh, I think I've got some like ideas as well that could that could really slot in with what you're doing perhaps we'll we'll take that at a later date but yeah by all means more than happy you know happy you want to have a look at it i do this thing with people when i'm life coaching and uh so i get the paper and what i what i get them to do is i i say right if you don't change your behavior Mm. i want you to write down 20 things it's going to cost you so the list always comes out it's always pretty much the same right so it's going to be like uh, wealth, as in, you know, keep drinking, it's going to cost me money, you know, or if I don't do that skydive or whatever, buckle yeah. Wealth, uh, family relationships to suffer, lack of holidays a year. I live in a house that I don't want to live in. I'll have friends that I don't like or they don't like, you know, not really friends. Da, da, da. You make this list. Then the next exercise, I get them to list here what, what's your dream life? Oh, right. Uh, do a skydive, um, two holidays a year with a family, uh, new car, you know, whatever, even, even if it's cliche or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Smiling every day, whatever exercising. And then I introduce the cycle of change, which is the most powerful model of human behavior. I think that's ever been written. It's by Prochaska and Dick Clemente. And they talk about how all change starts from pre-contemplation where, and that's your, I'm going to drink problem. I'm fine. I go to work. I work. Yeah. I drink 14 pints at night, but I work. So I, there to go in, you know, actually that 14 pints, that's probably not helping my life. And that's called the contemplation. Then there's the change. Then there's the maintenance of change. And then you deal with lapse or relapse, right? So lapse is like your odd beer relapses going right back into the cycle of bad behavior very powerful model 
But what I show people is that by coming to see me or to speak to me, you're not in pre-contemplation anymore. You realize your life needed to change. Mm. Yeah. You haven't, you, you haven't just contemplated it, but you've taken action. That's Brilliant. Right. You've come to speak to someone to change your, you know, because you want to change your life. So go back to our paper. You're no longer in this list of, in the shit list. You're moving your life to your, to your dreams. Yeah. You're already moving this direction. Brilliant. You're, mm. you're not here anymore. You're here. And then after we speak next week, you'll be here. And That's then right. you'll get here. And yeah, you might lapse. You might relapse and go back a bit, but you can never go all the way back to here or, or whichever side it was because <clears throat> physically now you're, you, you cannot go back. Once you understand change, you, you're not going to settle for second best. You're not going to go back to that shit life. You're going to keep for these goals and, and all I'm telling them is what what I've lived through, Tim, you know? It's what I've lived through. I've made a list of my goals, or, or I, I don't think I've ever even written them down, but, like, roughly where would I like my life to be? Well, I want a happy family. I want a nice, you know, a reasonable house. I'd like a bit of money, not a lot, but enough to pay the bills in the bank. Uh, I, I, um, I want to go to bed smiling and wake up smiling. I want to jump out of bed in the morning because I love what I do. You know, yeah. uh, I want a reasonable car to get me around. It doesn't have to be a Porsche or anything. Um, I want to, I want to go running because I like, lo- I like running. I want to eat a healthy diet because that makes me feel good. Uh, and I want to have good, re- you know, great relation. Well, my bit of paper that was there at one point in my life is it's, it, it's basically there and uh so yeah so I, I i think that really could fit in with what you're doing that kind of philosophy you know yeah i mean i use very similar potential action results belief so i, I believe you know people have the potential to change right this is where change comes along but the hardest part of potential action results belief it goes around a circle so you you might say to me i want to be um lifting weights every morning fine well you've got the potential to do that because you know, I can buy you some weights and you can lift them up. So we know you've got a potential. But the action part, the action part is the hardest bit to get to. Because once you do action it and you go and lift weights every morning for a week, then you see the results of that. You're like, oh, and then you start believing. And from that belief, you find that you have more potential. You can lift more weights. You can do what. So it goes around a circle. But the hardest part to bridge is the potential to the action. It's getting, this is why I don't like ideas, Chris. When people say, oh, I've got an idea for an app. I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. I, honestly, I've got an idea for a book. Don't care. I, I do care when you've written the first paragraph, by the way. But I don't care when you've got an idea. I've got a thing about goals as well. I'm into habits. I believe you'll get your goals by the right habits. Whenever I've had goals in my life, I've never really got there because I haven't really put the right habits in place to get to the goal. I've just gone, I want to be doing this. In flying training, what's interesting is the goal is to end up as a frontline fast jet pilot. Makes sense. That's there's no, and this is the other thing I tell people as well. I want to join the military. I do say to him, you do realize you've got to kill people. Yeah. It's not just a flying club here. You know, you're, you're going to be made into a weapon of conflict. That's the whole point. You are going to be someone who brings death to the battlefield in a really, really expeditious manner. A lot of death, by the way, that's the whole point of being a combat pilot. That's what you do. That is your SAAT. It's just a lot more powerful and it uses, you know, we get that in flying training. You go through different modules, different sections. So, you, the idea of being a fast jet pilot doesn't work. 
you, you've got to put these habits in place. I've got to teach you to take off. And then I've got to teach you to land. And then I've got to teach you to fly circuits. And then I've got to teach you, see what I mean? And all these things end up being habits that are layered on until eventually you're a frontline fast jet pilot. You're worth a lot of money, about seven million pounds. It's taken about seven years to train you. They're not going to pay you that much money, by the way. But, you know, you are an asset because you've built up by all these different things. And that's why I'm a big execution fan of, of all these things. Like, I'm going to get you to do an exercise because you're doing something. And the thought of you stopping drinking or whatever it might be, well, that's just a thought until you started doing something. But like you're saying with your card and then moving from one side to the other, when people can see something tangible, they're more likely to come back and do it. And a lot of people, and I think this is the problem with AA, is people think, well, I've got an AA class on Wednesday. I'm just going to go and do that. Or on on Friday, I've got another one. Or I go at the weekend. And one of my friends was on holiday and she spent four nights of the holiday, seven night holiday for the nights going to AA meetings in New York. So she's on holiday and she's, I mean, what kind of holiday is that? You know, she could have sat, spent back. I mean, but as she said, she said, well, I felt I was doing something. I could just go to, was, my idea was to always go to AA and it all gets very woolly. So I'm a, I'm a massive, tangible, action orientated, execution, not ideas kind of guy. And that's just how I kind of run this side of it. And I like what you're saying with that paper, how people can move left to right. But, you know, with potential, everyone has potential, don't they? You know, I've got potential to write 17 books, but I haven't even written out the titles. I've done nothing towards them whatsoever. You know, that's, that's the thing. That's how I Next, feel about um, it. Thanks for your, for, you know, for your openness of talking about alcohol, because it's not, uh, it's a big part of the problem. We're, we're facing a veteran suicide epidemic at the moment. Yeah, yeah, really are. And you've yeah. got all these guys going, yeah, Give me a call, come for coffee, and it makes a nice little Facebook post, right? But the truth is, if you're still that bigoted person that looks down on people for having mental health conditions, i.e. alcoholism, drug addiction, or all the other addictions out, then you ain't really much help and support to to the military community. You're actually unhelpful. Because I'm going to say these people that committed suicide obviously weren't they didn't feel that they could reach out to you, you know? Yeah, else they would have done, yeah. Uh, and why didn't they feel that? Well, I'd say it's probably because there's a lot of bigotry that goes on in the military community. It's a bigotry. I don't know whether that's the right word, Chris, but I, I, machoism, I don't know what it is. But I, I get pilots write to me, and I literally have to drag it out of them, you know? Like, why have you written to me? Oh, I just, you know, I was interested in what you said when you wrote your essay about mental health. Oh, you are just interested, were you? You know, what is going on in your life? And eventually they're like, dude, my marriage is falling apart. I hate my job. I fucking feel suicidal. I've been measuring out beams in my garage with rope on them. I'm like, now we can have a conversation. This is a man that's struggling and is still unable to tell me what the problem is. I get angry with it because that man could be swinging from a beam because he felt he couldn't write to me. He couldn't phone me up. He couldn't tell me. It's a friend of mine crying out loud. I was working down in Bristol, Chris, and we had uh, a pilot down there kill himself. He was in a desk job in the Ministry of Defense. He'd been in North America flying these these fighter jets out there that anyone would give the right arm to one of the most talented pilots I've ever known. This guy was a test pilot. Just his wife went to work one morning. He went to the garage and hung, hanged himself, you know, because he couldn't speak to anyone about it. You know? uh, and it does upset me. It's like, what do you mean you couldn't speak to anyone? So no one ever knew. No, no, nothing. He just felt, he c- I wrote an essay on it back in 20, 
2013, 2014, and the essay was called When Good Pilots Go Bad. And I wrote that title on purpose. It was clickbaity. I wanted people to say, oh, you can't say people with mental health are bad. I wanted people to say that because, of course, they didn't believe that. But I wanted people to read the essay. And that was about my own struggles with mental health conditions, me going to the military and saying, I'm not thinking straight here. I'm, I'm bordering on the suicide. This is ridiculous. I'm, I think I don't know what it is. I, I know what it is now because I went to see a psychiatrist and they, they told me it was, um, it was chronic stress from 2011 was a really bad year. My father died in Afghanistan. People were killed. Serves inquiring to the Red Arrows. There was a horrible year that went on to 2013, 2014, eventually, or sorry, 2012, 13 and 14 when eventually I went, I don't, actually another flight commander came to me and said, I, he said, I've been seeing a psychiatrist for the last year. I reckon maybe you need to go and see that guy. Someone reached out to me. Amazing. I did. Went to see them. Over the next year, it got a lot better. You know, I'm, still, I'm not saying it's still completely gone away, but it got better. But the service still kept me flying. So I'm, I wrote an essay about, you know, having real issues with chronic stress and still flying fighter jets because the military doesn't pay enough attention to this. And I'm like, guys, this jet I'm flying costs 28 million pounds. And I, all I want to do is talk it out with someone. And you're, you're keeping me flying. You're not having the conversation, not only with me, you're not having a conversation. You're not having a conversation on a squadron. You're not having a conversation as an Air Force. You're not having a conversation about what you're doing to the mental health of all these young people that are coming in, working through a privatized system that is struggling. And you're keeping guys like me, you know, doing this where we are telling you everything's going to go wrong. Someone's going to have an accident. And eventually we shut the squadron down. Uh, I got two psychiatrists to come into the squad and they shut it down for six months. And it allowed me to rebuild my instructor Carter to the point that the story is a bit longer, but you know what I mean? It was that helped me then progress my men and women through in the way I felt they should be. But I wrote, and, and still, I seem to be the only person out here. I mean, this is why it's great to speak to you, Chris. I mean, because you get it, but there's people that don't get it. And these people are just like us and they could be doing more and they don't do it. And I feel they are completely responsible for the, uh, large, largely responsible um, for the way that some of these young people are coming out of the military and suffering with mental health sh- issues. And we have this veteran epidemic that it's like, we can't talk about it. Why can't we talk about it? We're just, we're just going to let these young people that came back from the battlefield without any legs sit in their, their flat. And you know what happens with these young soldiers that come back? Their mates are there for the first few years until the mates start getting families of their own. And then the mates aren't, don't come back anymore. And this, this young man or this young woman sits there in their, in their flat on disability for the rest of their life. It's just horrendous. We don't talk about it, you know, until they kill themselves and become a, a statistic at all. You know, that's it. Yeah, I say, I say the bigoted thing, Tim, because, you know, the military is still under this really outdated, antiquated notion of macho-ness mm. that it's cool to drink. And yeah, yeah, we get it. When you're young, it's fun to drink and you go and bond with your buddies. You do some real stupid shit when you're drunk. And you have some amazing adventures when, you know, you go on run ashores and end up waking up in some strange bed in some strange place. And yeah, I mean, that, 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 I'm, not, I'm not knocking all the drinking per se, but it's this kind of, it's fine to go out and drink 12 pints and basically become, you know, have a problem with alcohol. In, and in that process, you know, you... you it's okay to go and beat beat up a complete stranger in the taxi rank and put them in intensive care. You know, this is all the stuff that goes on in the military, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, but don't you dare take a pill and go and dance for 12 hours and hug people and, like, actually, 
enlighten yourself as, as, as to who you really are as a person, right? Um, but we yeah. don't want them to be enlightened. I mean, you, you don't want, if you had enlightened military, you wouldn't have a military. Yeah. I, I, it wouldn't exist. Yeah. You, you got, you've got this thing where, ah, it's, it's kind of hard to discuss without really getting into one. But what I mean is, I, th- I think the military need to recognize some way. Well, they won't because it's not, the military doesn't care about the vet. This is the irony. The military, as in like the MOD, they couldn't give a shit. The, the only reason they'd have any interest in the veteran, the, the suicide epidemic is they know that it's not good for their recruiting statistics. That's right. That That's is the only, reason. only care they have. Other than that, once you leave the military, you, you are, yeah. you're nothing. You're nothing. Yeah. That surprised me as well, actually, Chris, that surprised me. And I understand it in a way um because else what would the alternative so i i've called up rf valley i've got a bungalow up there we we lived in a bungalow um it's near the beach it's a nice little bungalow and we we go back there sometimes and you know i've got friends at valley where i used to fly i phoned up the um i'm an honorary mess member i think if you stay in the air force a long time they make you an honorary mess member which is quite nice so i can go to the i have a cup of tea in the mess you know whatever um and i phoned the gym and i said look I'm a veteran here. I've done 20 years, 10 of them at Valley. Um, I come up here, you know, re- every month or whatever, do a bit of writing, walk on the beach, a bit of exercise. Can I use your gym? <laughs> and the girl on the phone was lovely. She says, oh, I don't know. I'll check with the senior gym person, you know, senior. This woman called me back and she said, no, absolutely not. She said, um, I said, but, I, you know, I said, I'm, I'm not going to take it. I said, it's the, one of the biggest gyms in the country. Uh, it was made when Prince William was up there and they kind of got the figures wrong. So it's, it's an awesome, it's like a Royal Marines gym. You know, it's an awesome gym. Uh, no one's ever really in it because the population of Valley is quite small and the squadrons have their own gyms anyway. So, you know, there's space. Um, and I think I still got a key fob for it anyway. That probably still works, but I was asking permission. You know what I mean? And she said, no, she said, imagine if every veteran wanted to use their gym when they left. I'm like, Oh, imagine if they did, wouldn't that be great to keep veterans back into the community? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, how often would you seriously use a gym? I mean, you probably, well, you're down in Guz, aren't you? So you probably use Drake or something, wouldn't you? And go down there, maybe, maybe. But you're not, you don't want to be that tied to the military anyway. But you know what? When you're feeling low, you'd probably go down there and lift a few weights or go and run the tre- on the treadmill and surround yourself with other men and women and just feel a bit like you belong or you did belong to something. You just would. And it would go, that's enough for a couple of weeks just to stop me measuring up those freaking beans in the garage thinking about killing myself again. You know, it would just be something where it would just help a little bit. And that's what I was saying. It's like, give me something here. I've just given you 20 years. I'm not asking for much. Mm-hmm. You know, let me run around your field with your, your little, you know, your salt course thing on it. There's one of those at Valley. Why can't I just do that? You know, why make it so hard? Why not say to veterans, yes, you can, or limit the time. Or you know what? Weekday mornings between 10 and 12, because the rest of it, we've got to, you know, how many veterans are really going to use that? What, four a week? Hardly any. Most people don't want to do it. But when I left, that didn't happen. There was no connection to the military whatsoever. And I, I, although I get it, I just think it's a really wasted opportunity. And the Americans do this a lot better than us, Chris. Mm, they yeah. really do. Well, there's that. It, it's the situation is where when you're in the military, you're not really an enlightened individual because it doesn't lend it. That environment doesn't lend itself to you developing empathy and empathy is obviously a very big factor. And, yeah. you know, if you, if you don't understand 
love for your humanity and, and love for yourself, you're never going to understand loving a veteran. <laughs> and, no, and also when people leave, you think, well, they've left. You know, they're not part of it anymore. I can see that because when I was in, I felt the same when I knew pilots were leaving for the airlines. I was like, well, go then, fine. The rest of us will just do this. The rest of us will take care of it. I don't know whether you saw that in the Marines when people were leaving or people do leave and it's always going to, we're always going to be leaving too. You know, we are at some point, everyone has to leave the military. Uh, But I still remember thinking about people when they left in a negative sense, not in a go on, mate, uh, go and do something amazing in city street. I always remember thinking it in a negative sense. There's, um, I've been thinking about, there's a lot about conformity, Chris. I don't know whether you've ever thought about what it means to be conformist in a military structure, because I believe it's the opposite of, creativity um so we can't create when we're conforming and that makes a lot of sense because someone that does create something like you write books or you do youtube or your podcast you're creating something you're putting yourself out there and you're exposing yourself to ridicule and and you are i am as well by speaking on your podcast right now we're putting ourselves out our ideas are out there people can rip them apart if you're in a military context and you're in a squadron i only know from a squadron you know you, you can talk about a troop if you want to um and you're doing something other people aren't doing, what are you doing? You're putting yourself out now, aren't you? You're, you're putting your head above the parapet. Someone can take a shot at you and say, what are you doing? Like, what do you mean you're writing a book? You know, how do you know how to write a book? You know, what do you, you're, what do, what do you know about writing? So we don't do it. So for 20 years, I didn't do anything creative. I don't know many people that played a musical instrument. I, know, I don't know many people that were in the drama club or, or sang or, or wrote anything. And when I started writing in 2011, 2011 2012 i did it out of frustration at my command structure i was like you're not listening to what these people are telling you so i'm going to tell the rest of the world instead and i you know it was it was a horrible five six years it really was you know whenever i wrote something i'd go to work the next day or on a monday morning and i know people would have read it and i know people especially on the squadron the, the boss or, or the station commander and the station commander would some he literally before i even got in the squadron he'd He'd send me a he'd phone me up or something. He'd send me a text and say, "Come to my office on the way to the squadron." You know, and he, he'd say, "What do you, you know, when you write about mental health, Tim? When you write about mental health, you're telling people that you're flying a jet and you're not mentally sound." I'm like, "Yes, I I am saying that to the station commander, loud and clear. I'm about to go fly in about two hours' time in an airplane and I'm struggling, and I, and, and people in my team are struggling." And we're telling you every day we're struggling and I'm still doing it. And these men are still flying and there is nothing you're doing about it. And I have spoken to the doctors. And in fact, one of the docs was great at Valley. Um, when we had our every year, you have a medical, it's a pretty intense medical, to, you know, as a fast jet pilot. And one of the doctors was a really old boy. And he used to say, how much are you drinking? And we used to go, oh, three or four beers a night. He went, all right. So what about, eight to ten pints a night then really we go oh, probably he goes good don't stop doing that because he recognized the balance between alcohol and mental health in high performance environments and as far as he, he died now he's, he's dead but as far as he was concerned without that decompression in the bar he used to say are you going to the bar uh, do you go to the bar in the evening yeah i normally stop off for a pint on the way home chat to the guys fine you're fine then you're all right if you're not doing that he starts worrying about you Mm. that's because he's old school, Chris. You know, he knows how it works. If you're going to put people in these airplanes and fly them close to the ground the whole time, they're going to walk away with some mental health issues and they're going to need to decompress those things. And that's what the bar was there for. That's what the decompression was there. And when my father left the police force, um, I don't know whether you know much about the police service. They used to have police clubs 
associated mm. with police stations. Yeah, you, you're aware of that. I, I, I say that because it, it was the prison officers had the same thing, didn't they? Oh, the prison yeah, yeah. Your prison bar. So above the police club in Cosham, my father was a, a traffic officer in Cosham down in Portsmouth. Um, and above that was it called a police club. He used to sing in the Hampshire Male Voice Choir, police choir. He used to sing there. And when I was a kid, he'd be singing and have his pint there. I was about seven. I'd be dipping my crisp in his pint. You know, all that old memories we have. But um, they shut those bars because they couldn't condone drinking for the police service. They shut them. And what happened to the mental health of the, of the police officers? It went through the roof. The mental health issues went through the roof. Uh, all of them. Because they, they, they finished cleaning up a... One of my father, he, he, he came back and he's, it was obviously a really bad day and he used to draw the accidents on tracing paper. That was his job. And then he'd present to a court, you know, he was an accident investigator, police traffic officer in the police car's arm response. And I remember seeing this, this big tracing thing he'd drawn and there were loads of bodies, car, and it was a French family that had been decapitated on the M27. Their car had gone underneath a jackknife lorry, all the family, two kids, two parents, decapitated, bodies ripped apart, and he'd drawn an arm, and he'd drawn it where the head had ended up on, on a kid. He cleaned that up. He'd come home, and he'd drawn that plan of an evening whilst he's got his whiskey and his beer, and then he'd gone to work the next day, and he'd done exactly you know, the same thing. You can't – no wonder he ended up with PTSD because he, he did after years of being in, in you know, 37 years in the police service. He left the police service, died about four years later. Um, so that's why they had police clubs. He could come back from that. He could go upstairs, get himself smashed, and some police car coming on shift would have driven him home. Mm. That's what they used to do. And now, of course, that didn't happen because they shut the police clubs. He'd come home, be doing this, drinking. Wife would have a go at his drinking. He'd be, you know, argument would happen, divorce, all that kind of stuff would come out of it. And I'm not condoning drinking, but I am condoning the facilitation of proper mental health care within these services. That's what I'm trying to get across. I just don't see it there. Tim, listen, um, um, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Thank you for having me on, Chris. I do appreciate well, it. you know, as I, as I say to many of my guests, it's, it, it, I look forward to picking this up in whatever uh, framework we, we, we can use next time. Maybe it might be to come on one of my live shows and just answer people's questions because, I mean, when when do you get the chance to ask a fast jet pilot <laughs> about what it's like to fly jets? It's um, so oh, we haven't really done that as well, have we? That's the thing. We've we've talked about situations around that, which is which I think is almost more important than talking about you know how do you plan for a sortie and this sort of stuff. I mean, I'll bring you onto my you know onto my channel, and then we can go deep diving into you know your experiences in the as a royal in the, in the core. I'd be very interested in that because it probably aligns very much. So like my father's experiences back in the day, you know, and so those that'd be quite valuable, I think. But yeah, anytime you want to, um, yeah, go over stuff, let me know. And I'll, I'll, um, uh, in that case, let's close off with talking about flying um, fast jets. I mean, I could, God, I'd, I'd love to just talk to you for hours and hours and hours about that in in itself. I've been watching some of your your cockpit videos and just the sensation of rolling around the countryside and the speed you must be going at. I mean, what's it like to fly a jet? Um, not much that's actually happening in the cockpit, if that makes sense. So everything dynamic when you see an aircraft fly 
is, we're moving across the countryside about seven miles a minute. So you're every in a car, you're doing one mile a minute on you, 60 miles an hour. So we're doing about 500 miles an hour. And that's a standard speed that we fly at in the low level environment. And the height we fly at is the height of those, of those um, electricity pylons that you see. It's about 250 feet is the height we, we, we tend to fly. We can fly down to 100 feet. Um, the, the cockpit, the flying is all about the future. That's what I tell people. And what I mean by that is whatever you're planning on doing now in this particular moment has gone. In fact, you know, every six, seven seconds, it's a mile behind you by definition. It's, it's over. So a lot of what the work we do in the cockpit is approximating and refining that, especially the maths. There's a lot of mental maths going on. We measure everything in time, not distance, because it doesn't matter what speed you're flying at then. So if I'm two minutes away from the airfield, well, I'm, I'm two minutes away, whether I'm flying 700 miles an hour, whether I'm flying 50, you know, I'm still two minutes. You know, if I start talking in miles, then, then I have to put another factor in about my speed. But it's, when we talked earlier about management of airline cockpits, a lot of it is about that. It's mission management stuff. So everything you're doing is, this is why pilots sometimes suffer from anxiety because we're, we're basing our life around what ifs, like what if this happens? like you would have done when you were flying, like what if you get airborne in your Cessna 172 and the engine fails at 400 feet? You know, you've, you've planned for that in your pre-brief. You've gone, well, I'm going to go left for that field or I'll land ahead on the runway or I'm going to, you know, we, a pilot's life is about that. That doesn't stop when you leave the military, by the way. And when you start living in the future, you live a, an anxious life, which is the work I've do with myself and other people now to help them suppress that. But it's all about planning. It's all done before the trip. Nothing you do in the aeroplane is left a chance. It's not, none of it's random or sporadic. If you see an aircraft flying around at low level, he is a fast jet. It's probably on. It's probably on a, a going on an attack run at some point. Um, so it's, where they're going is, is all being planned out. The target is being planned out. It's taking three hours to do that whole plan. It's going to take two hours or an hour and a half to debrief it when you get back as well. But it's a very calm environment in the cockpit, Chris. And when I did Red Flag in America. One thing that's a very um, big American exercise full of combat jets and helicopters and, and multi-engine airplanes all working together. It's supposed to be the busiest war you ever go in, but it's in America. You know, you're practicing for war. Um, one thing that came across clear to us as a tornado squadron was the, co- the quieter the cockpit, i.e. the less communication between the front and the back seater in the cockpit, the more successful the mission outcome was going to be. So therefore you start automating routines and you start trusting the person to do something at the right time. And there's so much radio going on now. I mean, listen to these young soldiers, they've got radios going on as well, but in a cockpit, you've got a strike primary frequency. You've got another combat frequency coming in here. You've got the navigator talking. You've got your own frequency between aircraft you're working with. It's a busy time. You're listening to, you know, two or three, four frequencies at once. So the whole point is to take that information and make it usable. What I would say is, is to pass the information. So you take the data, pass it into something. And so a lot of the flying is about managing all those external influences. And as long as you can manage them, a lot of it, as I said, is done in planning, then you, you'll have a successful trip. The reason people die in airplanes is when they do something that has not been planned for. And that's normally caused by uh, you know, a failure of sorts that they haven't predicted and the failure becomes worsened by their actions and then, it, and then to the point where it's unsustainable and then they crash. Um, so everything we do is to, to plan and to minimise uh, every eventuality like that, which unfortunately makes my marriage 
um, not the best because I, I, I kind of, I plan everything out. My wife says, should we go to, should we go to Cheltenham shopping? I'm like, what if the pandemic is right? Yeah. You know, what, what if we walk, you know, and it's like, Oh, just go and do it. Live in the now and your, your life is so much happier. But yeah, it's a sweat, it's a sweaty place as well, Chris. There's a lot of stuff we're wearing. It's quite claustrophobic in there as well. And what's the, the sensation, you know, when you drive a car and you get a chance to drive it fast, it's generally pretty good fun. Is I'm, 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 I mean, I'm assuming it's the, I mean, I've only flown in an aeroplane, obviously. It's pretty much got one speed. Once you get up to altitude, yeah, you can dive it a bit. Or Not that I ever really did that. I was kind of quite just happy to get up and down safely. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but you're in a machine that can fly, I mean, faster than the sound barrier. Am I, am I right in yeah, you can. We don't. Um, the typhoons do if they need to, um, but it tends to be very fuel heavy. It tends to burn a lot of fuel. You only carry so much fuel. Uh, the tornado we never did. The F3 did, but the ground attack variant didn't fly above the speed of sound. About 600 knots was the fastest that we'd probably go. So about 0.87 of the speed of sound, I think, was the – or 0.93, I think, was the limit of the – so almost speed of sound. But, um, yeah, so we, when – there's different levels of flying. So if you if you take the most basic, we're probably looking at gliding or something, aren't we? Or light aircraft flying, going A to B. And then the most dynamic I felt ever, um, I think US Naval aviators would talk about night landings on carriers as being, you know, that's, I think most pilots would agree with that. I think the other thing that I would say was was very challenging from my point of view was night vision goggles at low level in the Scottish valleys. At, you know, so at night, poor weather, you know, trying to be shot down by other aircraft. It's, it's all training, but you're in these valleys on everything's green. You've worn MBGs before. Uh, and now you're in this aircraft at 250 feet doing nine miles a minute on attack run. That's 540 knots. Um, I might have to refine, find that mass, but that's your attack run speed. I mean, that's fast things. If things hit the, you know, if a bat hits your airplane at that speed, you know, things are going to fall off. You know, it, that is, that is fast. The tornado luckily was, was a bit of a brute and things normally bounced off it and, you just dusted off our engineers were very good like that you know what i mean but uh, that there's no mistake there's no margin for error and when you're doing it and it's snowing as well and, and there's snow on the on the mountains um and you can put the terrain following radar in for the aircraft but that's a whole procedure so you don't want to get that wrong because then you think you're the aircraft's flying itself and it's not so normally you're manually flying and you're looking out trying to avoid things it doesn't for me those were the most challenging sources i've ever been in ever and you're still working. It's, I tell people in the airplane, you don't get much chance to look out at these things. It's a job. You know, flying, it's a job. Being a combat pilot is a job and they pay you money. Um, not a great deal of money. I think I left about, I think I, I think I was nudging 70 grand when I left, which is not bad money. But, you know, don't get me wrong. The, the time you spend at work, it's full on. I was chatting to a, an F-18 pilot from the US, uh, from, the, from Australia recently. And I said, are you going to go back and fly? And he said, no. He said, the problem with being a, a fast jet pilot is you can't do anything else with your life. We've spoken about this now, Chris. It's like, you know, I enjoy doing this. I enjoy, you know, being a combat pilot, no time for anything else. No time for thinking about anything else, really. Um, and in the cockpit, it's full-on work. And I've got videos on my channel you can you can watch and you can see the work is being done. It's, it's a very hostile work environment. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be quite dangerous as well and it takes a lot of control. And that's, that's why these people take a lot of training. Um, but yes, I'll tell you a lot of the times I didn't want to fly. It'll be like, I used to go into work sometimes going, I hope 
the wind's all across the runway and we don't have to fly today because I'm either knackered or the flights I've got are really challenging, hard trips that I've got to do a lot of work for. And it's going to be very easy to make a mistake on them. And that's going to highlight me to my peers as, you know, there's a lot of things to remember. There's a lot of procedures that you need to be coming up routinely with um, from memory. You, you, you know, the check cards don't always come out. You start the jet and you shut it down without any cards on you. Um, the flight reference cards, they're just in a pocket. Um, everything else, jet flying is all done from memory. It's all routine. You get the cards out when you have an emergency. Um, so yeah, it's busy. It's busy in the cockpit uh, and it's a full-on job. And that's why they pay to do it. And when people write to me saying, I do the job for free, I'm like, I used to think that as well when I was 14. I don't think that anymore. They probably couldn't pay me enough to go back and do it again. They might be able to, we'll see. But uh, yeah. It's... Did you ever have to land on a carrier? No, I didn't. No, I never did. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, the F-35 guys are doing carrier ops now. So the young, some of the young students I trained on it, they're going on F-35. They're starting to go on a carrier. I mean, it's one of those really weird things though, Chris, I don't know whether you still read the Globe and Laurel or, or get Navy news or anything. Um, when you see pictures of the carrier and F-35s landing on it, the picture looks great. It's F-35, man, it must be so cool to land an F-35 on a carrier. I know those F-35 pilots. I know the work they put in to get there. I know the work they're doing at the moment to just be there. I know the struggles with the families they're having as well, because all of a sudden they've got young families invariably because it's taken so long to get them through flying training. The F-35 is a busy squadrons to be on. There's not many pilots on them right now. They're doing all the work. They're working up a new aircraft. You know, it's like, it's like you in the Marines. It's, if, you, if you change core you, or you go and do a mountain warfare course, you've got to do a lot of work. Um, so it's not as romantic as the picture shows. The picture looks a lot better than that. I'm not, by the way, when people write to me saying, I want to be a fast jet pilot, I want to be a helicopter pilot, crack on. It's a great career. I'd do it again tomorrow. Honestly, 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 I would. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would change a lot, but what I'm saying is I would still go and do it. Um, and I think the Navy is a great place to be, as I do think the Air Force is a good place to be as well. But it's, it's never that. It's like owning that Lamborghini Countach you had the picture of. It's never going to be as romantic as you think it is. Those services are going to cost you a fortune. You know what I mean? And no one's going to let you out in traffic. No one's going to let you out of traffic. So, um, yeah, I, yeah. It's more romantic than you think it is. And it, it is a hard job to do, but that's, that's part of the reward, isn't it? Uh, tell us then about uh, weapons training. How, 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 what, what's, what, what, how is that actually done? So there's, as you're a student, you get trained in weapons. So you get trained uh, on what's called four squadron now. Uh, I've got a picture over there, I think, of a four squadron hawk. That's a hawk T2 from four squadron. It's not that clear, sorry. It's um, a black hawk. You can put up a picture of a hawk later if you want. But um, we'll have a look at the videos. So the weapons training is all done synthetically in your training, which means there's no live drop uh, element to it. The Hawk can drop live weapons. We choose not to in the Air Force. So all the things to do with air combat and ground attack separate. So you do ground attack phase, and then you do an air combat phase. Um, You do a radar missile phase as well. And so you learn all these things as you go through. And then when you get onto the front line, of course, you're learning about new weapons and this kind of thing. And the tornado had a lot. Tornado had a lot of weapons to learn. Um, And I was an electronic warfare instructor. So my my role on the squadron was to protect them from being shot down by enemy surface air missiles. So I, I learned a lot about um, all the surface air missiles and things that could shoot us down. Basically that was my thing. Um, fascinated by surface air missiles, actually the, the, the technologies are just immense. Um, but we had on the tornado, we had um, paveway bombs, which are laser guided or GPS guided. We had the 
the gun, 27 millimeter Mauser cannon. We had brimstone on there. We had all the free fall and we had the retard um, munitions. Also we had, I think Azran was coming in when I left. I probably missed that alarm, which is air launched anti-radiation missile. Every one of those weapons, then you do a little phase in and most of them, you're never going to get to drop. There was an Island called Garvey up North of Scotland. And we used to bomb that a lot. Um, and you go to, you go to other places. Uh, so it's an Island in the, in the middle of the sea off, off near Shetlands and you go and drop retard or free fall weapons onto that, which is all quite good fun. Things go bang. But if you want to drop guided munitions, you tend to have to go to the States to do that. And there's big air weapons ranges down in Tucson. So every year a squadron would be going out there and you could guest on a squadron. So if you were new onto a squadron that had been recently uh, and another squadron were going, we'd send a young pilot or a young navigator to that squadron. They go to the States. Um, we had about 10 jets that lived in the States permanently, 10 tornadoes. They, they actually, they, they live permanently for the year, but they'd come out and they'd go back in every, every year to be flying across the Atlantic. And, um, and you just go and learn to do bombs out there and you just bomb the ranges and hopefully you won't get it wrong because um, if you do, if you do get it wrong, uh, you know, people die often. And one of the sad things about those ranges, there were packing crates you'd bomb. And very often the packing crates, immigrants coming from Mexico would, would sleep in them overnight whilst they're, they're making their way into the States. And so in the morning, a range officer should go out and check that everything was clear. But of course, invariably, you know, I, I do, I have heard stories of, you know, people being bombed and things like this. I mean, the ranges are vast, though, because, I mean, the, the airspace America has, huge. You know, we just don't have anything well, like that. And let's just finish <laughs> up then, Tim, on um, what near misses did you have? I bet you probably had a few over the years. So can you tell us some memorable things or what, yeah. what, actually anything you cocked up and, and got away with or didn't get away with? Yep. Yeah, of course, Cam. Yeah, almost killed myself many, many, many times. Um, there, there is this thing saying that you, you start out with a barrel, with, with a bucket of luck and a, and, a, and a bucket of experience, and the key is to, you know, empty the bucket of luck into, you know, try and fill your experience bucket before the bucket of luck empties. And normally, pilots they die around about seven hundred flight hours in, because that's the point at which your your ego is quite big, but your experience is quite low. I end up with about twenty five hundred flight hours. I can't remember now. But around about 700, that's, that's kind of like towards the end of the first tour. So you've done your flying training. You've, you've done maybe three, three years on a, on a frontline squadron. And you've been given some qualifications. And you, know, and you do something wrong. It's fine. You do something wrong. You push a kind of boundary a little bit and you do something wrong. Um, for me, I, I surged a Hawk once by grossly over, uh, over-controlling it with rudder, which serves the air, which destabilized the airflow into the... Um, intake which then reversed the flow around the compressor and, and surged and it was a locked in surge in a in a hawk on the on the on the door 151 engine and that surged and that locked in i had to shut that down and i was at about twenty thousand feet at the time so i had a bit of time you know before i died so um i uh i shut the engine down the aircraft was gliding they do glide the hawks glide reasonably well actually tornadoes don't typhoons don't most aircraft won't fly without the computer systems uh, keeping them flying. The Hawk doesn't have any computer systems to keep it flying. So you can shut the aircraft down completely um, as long as the little ram air turbine comes out the back to give you some hydraulic pressure, then you can glide that aircraft back quite happily. So I shut that engine down, um, went through the checks I needed to do, and I relit the engine and I managed to get that one back. That was me being an idiot. I've hit birds before. 
lots of birds. Um, but actually, I've been quite lucky. I only went for the ejection handle twice. I never had to pull it. I know many people have ejected. I know people that have ejected and been killed on ejection. Uh, the ejection seat won't save you um, in all conditions. And the Snowbird incident, the, Royal, the Canadian Air Force, Royal Canadian Air Force, recently lost one of their display aircraft. And they both ejected. But the ejection seat was so poor. And why that's still being used, I know why it's being used because no one's, no one's ever going to change it in an aircraft that old. But either way, um, one of the one of the people in the aircraft was killed on ejection. So that does happen. But most accidents happen, um, like most car accidents happen within a mile of your house. And there's many reasons for that. It's because most people drive within a mile of the house. And when you're coming back, when you're going in the morning, you've switched off, haven't you? You're going to work. When you're coming back in the evening, you've switched off from, you know, as you come back home. Uh, so you have an accident. In the same way, most accidents happen in aircraft on takeoff or landing. And most of my instances I had were on takeoff or landing. Um, but luckily, I, I didn't ever eject. And I know one of them, if I had have ejected, uh, I would have been killed on it. And I, I think I've got a video, not about that, but there's a video about when the engine stops. And it's to do with force landing the aircraft. It's a different profile. And on one of those force landings, when we're simulating the engines failed, and we're coming down quite steeply, 15 degrees, to keep the airspeed, and, uh, one of my students did call for an ejection. And, uh, and if he had ejected at that point, we would have both been killed because below 800 feet with the profile we're flying, the ejection seat, they'll come out, the parachutes will start opening, but the rate of ascent is too great to, um, to slow you down. Mm. And that was my fault for not telling him that the picture he's going to see is going to look a little bit different to what he expects on a normal landing. So, uh, you know, I learned, I learned about flying from that. So from then on, I'd always tell my instructors, if you're going to practice one of these with a student in the aircraft, make sure you tell them that the picture they're going to see is not doesn't look like a normal picture they're going to see when they're landing their airplane. It's a little bit steeper, and that will that will stop you from being killed. But um, I, I think a lot half it's luck, Chris, and uh, half it is as I said, filling that experience bucket before that luck runs out. And yeah, and, and <laughs> you've obviously had that luck to for us to be having this conversation now, which is uh, yeah, that that's obviously a very good thing. And you mentioned uh, a red arrows fate, red uh, red arrows pilot fatality. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, it's really hard how you look at this. You could say that it was an opportunity I was given, or you could say that actually it changed me in some way that that won't ever be undone, and that's fine because things do change us, and and things do change us. Life is like that, right? Life is life is this fine balance we try and create for ourselves don't we and we take these knocks and it does move us and then maybe if we're lucky we get to move back into a more central position that's all we that's all that life is it's never going to go to the plan but in 2011 unfortunately there was a um a, a red arrows crash in bournemouth um a friend of mine called john eggins was killed uh he was a young pilot um about a bit younger than me actually and he the, the, the inquiry took about eight months in, in fairness, it took about five months uh, of me being with the other two members of the team. They pick a Hawk expert normally, then they pick a senior officer and they pick an engineer and they go all try service. It just so happens that two of us were in the Air Force and the engineer was an Army uh, engineer, lovely guy, um, really nice guy actually. So he did all the engineering work. The senior guy kept everything together and I did all the operational stuff about, you know, I know how to fly a Hawk. John was flying a Hawk. You know, and you sit down, you, you talk to the Red Arrows, and unfortunately, the Reds weren't in a great place at the time as a team, um, a very fragmented team. Uh, and seven weeks later, we'd, we'd started the inquiry, 
seven weeks later, we'd interview the team. Seven weeks later, we were back up to the Red Arrows to, to interview the pilots and get them to sign. And they were friends of mine, crying out loud. Um, and unfortunately, another pilot was killed that day as well. A guy called Sean Cunningham was a friend of mine. And as he crewed into his airplane, um, I believe it was November the 7th. It might be in the 8th. I can't remember now. But he was he he did his control checks, which inadvertently fired the ejection seat from the way the seat had been sort of the way the pin had been put into the seat. Unfortunately, you could, you could make a mistake back then. The whole thing was an error fired him out. And unfortunately the seat had been serviced incorrectly and the parachute never came out of the seat. He was killed. And we were there for that. And that kind of, uh, and that, that was an investigation. I, I did the first one. So a Navy guy, um, came on and did the, did Sean's one, the second one. And we did the first one because that's what we were doing. And unfortunately, John was found to have been unconscious on the break as he came in. The Red Arrows come in and they all do this this, this great, very display break. And uh, it, was a, it was a bit faster than normal. Not that it was a massive issue, but he just unfortunately went unconscious and the aircraft crashed and he was killed. And so we put this report together and that report led into a lot of changes within the team. Now, up until 2018, I didn't feel there'd be much change within the team. I don't really talk about the team too much anymore. There are some people that were on the team back in those days that really have an issue with me. And that's fine because I think I made them safer. And I'm happy to be the guy that's not liked as long as they're able to go home in the evening. That's fine what, by me. You know what I mean? What's, what's their issue? What did you do? So at the time, there was, there was significant practices in the engineering side. People were oversigning engineering. No one knew who was, no one knew who'd serviced Sean's ejection seat. And obviously done it incorrectly, unfortunately, um, or outside of the procedures because they were oversigning it. So there were bad engineering practices at the time. Um, there were a lot of things the Reds were doing that other squadrons in the Air Force weren't doing because it was felt to be unsafe. And what happens, for example, Chris, um, you understand this. If you were to go and lead an investigation into the special boat service because you're not in the SBS, for example. So they say, look, you're not in the SBS. Um, so you're a fresh pair of eyes. So I want you to go and look at this fatality. The SBS have lost a couple of guys in training. And because you're not in the SBS, I want you to go and look at it. What's going to happen to you? They're going to say things like, well, you can't know what we do because you're not in the SBS. You're going to have to get over those kind of hurdles. You're going to have to understand the procedures that the SBS employ and how they're different to being a regular Marine. And so we were faced with a bit of that, a bit of the team. It's very hard to understand what the team do because no one else do what the team does. Um, Also, the team have been given a, clean bill of health by people that are coming to assess the team squadrons are assessed every year by an independent team uh, and so by doing that the team felt that what they were doing was correct and actually the work they'd done on a lot of the things uh, on the a lot of the maneuvers they'd done was sound they'd risk assessed all the all the maneuvers they do or when they come together and they do the loops all together they'd risk assessed it what they hadn't risk assessed was any of the ways they land the aeroplanes. And they land the aeroplanes in different ways. Sometimes it's a, they come into the airfield and they loop and then they all break out and then they come and land. Sometimes they come in, and unfortunately this is how John was killed, and they come in as a nine and they break out and they pull lots of G and they come and land. The argument that we had as a, a service inquiry was that these are display maneuvers. They should have risk assessments attached to them so that you know whether... Um, that whether you're supposed to do them or not. This is what risk assessments are for. I mean, how likely are you to crash on these aircraft? They felt that they weren't display maneuvers. The service inquiry I was on, the board, the panel felt they were. And the reason that we were assured they were, and the reason that they're now risk assessed on the team was because no other squadron in the Royal Air Force did that. Um, no one else did those maneuvers when they came into land. 
So because of that, they are part of the display. Else, why would you do them? You just come in individually. You just do nine aircraft in a long line. But no, you come in with smoke on this big looping brake because it's part of your display and therefore it should be display manoeuvres. Unfortunately, um, a lot of change had to happen within the team. Uh, It did happen within the team. It probably put a few noses out joint, to be honest with you. And they didn't help themselves with having the fatality uh, of Sean Cunningham. And then later on, when Dave Stark was flying, Dave Stark was a friend of mine. He flew an aircraft at RAF Valley, a Red Arrow, and he did a manoeuvre uh, which I, having done the research into it, I felt that the team hadn't given him enough opportunity to practice. It was an engine failure after takeoff, but unfortunately he crashed his airplane at RF Valley and the engineer in the back died. So again, I commented on that on one of my videos. Um, and it's for me, it's not good enough, Chris. We can say, yeah, they're the red arrows. They're always in the Daily Mail. Bright red airplanes, they're brilliant. I don't care. Keep killing people. Stop killing people. And then you won't have people coming to investigations and people do have a go at me and I'll take every one of those spears. I'd rather say it and keep people alive and not say it. And then be that guy that has to write an email to a widow or a letter to a widow saying, yeah, I knew your husband. He was a great pilot. I'm sorry that he died. Yeah. So I'm the anti red arrow guy for some reason. I'm not because they're all friends of mine. I all know them. Uh, occasionally a guy will get upset like he did last week, write me an angry email and, and then block me and, you know, I've got to remove him from fast jet performance because he's, he's writing nasty things on there. And that's going to happen for anyone like you or I that puts out content. People are going to find issues with it. And if that's the case, well, let's turn our cameras off and go home and let's not do this. Uh, but I'd rather be that guy that gives some kind of positive message out there and have the odd guy um, not like me very much. And that's, that's what we did with the Red Arrows, unfortunately. And they're a better team now because of it. So Good. So on that subject, do you want to give a shout out to your websites and your Twitter and, 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 and I'll put, obviously I'll put the links below the video. I want to give a shout out to what you're doing. I think what you're doing is amazing. I think, I think more people, um, I think, I think I can see what's going to happen with you. You're just going to grow into this thing and people are just going to leap on and follow you and you, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And they're going to go, Likewise, hopefully. Yeah. And I'll be like, Oh, I used to know Chris once. And then he got really famous. <laughs> um, so I have a Facebook page called Fast Jet Performance. And Fast Jet Performance, uh, there's real two kind of groups I talk about, which is the guys in their 40s and 50s. And I also talk about guys in their late, guys and girls, sorry, in the late teens through to the early 30s. That's most of my audience. And uh, what we talk about is, we do a lot of talking about mental health, actually, but we talk about performance. We talk about tangible performance and how to really uh, understand what that means in the work context. So that's, um, there's a YouTube channel. I talk about that on my YouTube channel fast jet performance so go and subscribe there if you want to you'll see loads of stuff and if you're a young person thinking of joining the military or just thinking of going out into the workspace in general there's a lot of stuff in there um, about that about you know what it means to to go and find a job and what you need to do for it and one i did recently a video i did recently was about um how to prepare it was a live it was a facebook as a youtube live uh, a guy wrote me an email um want to join the air force and he had some issues and so i explained it on the on the on the youtube live so there's facebook there's that there's i'm not a massive twitter fan i don't know whether you do twitter do chris i don't i've got an account but i very rarely do yeah if i I want to feel really sad i i do twitter what what i found is is i've been guilty in the past of just kind of like using a shotgun approach to social media yeah same what what i've learned is that they're very um uh um 
idiosyncratic is probably maybe the word you have to use a different approach mm. for each one you do yeah you can't just copy and paste content can you? it doesn't work yeah, no it, it it doesn't and for example i used to wonder why i could put something say on instagram and i'm not big on any of it but you, you've kind of got to try and be in this job i could put something on instagram and get like a hundred likes or whatever or shares and put the same thing on twitter and not even yeah, no. Yeah. Eighty thousand people on Twitter, not get a single a single retweet, right? And then then I realised what it is. It's um, it's people follow you on your different platforms for different reasons, mm. and you need to meet their their, their their you know their needs and their wants from you. And and uh, so yeah, that's that's an interesting thing again. So all the all the blog articles and everything I write is on fastshipperformance.com, which is the website, and uh, that's where I do all the, the coaching from and everything else. But the the YouTube channel, I've uh, got some flying videos on there, some some stuff where I talk to you know, individuals like yourself and some other just life advice, really, from a guy that's kind of been there and, and messed it up in several ways. And then um, Facebook is where the conversation tends to happen. And uh, I don't tend to do Instagram. I don't tend to do Twitter, uh, really, I'm not big into those spheres. I don't tend to engage with people who don't want to give me their name. How's that sound? So if you're on Twitter and you're like Big Dog 44 and we're having an argument, you're not going to argue with me very long because you know my name because it's written all over it. It's written as Tim Davies. That's who I am on Twitter. I'm Tim Davies. If you're coming at me as, you know, SheWolf17, I don't care. Your opinion means nothing to me because I don't know who you are. And that's another interesting thing about people that are using Twitter from within the military structure that are not having their own names on there. I'm not interested in engaging with those people. I've got the chief of air staff, Mike Wigston, his name's on Twitter as Mike Wigston. I know who I'm speaking to, but yet I'm speaking to some young army officer who says I'm in the army and he's, he's called, I don't know, Daddy Bear 4 or something. <laughs> who, who is that, Chris? Who am I speaking to? And he's like, well, I don't want to give my identity away. Well, don't use Twitter then, you fool, because I'm not going to speak to you, am I? You know what I mean? It's like, so, and by the way, and I say that with authority, when in 2011, when I started writing, I wrote as me from day one. I didn't put anything, but I didn't hide at all. I put it out and I took the spears on a daily basis from friends, from instructors I was working with, everything. I put it out there. And you know why I put it out there, Chris? Because now it's easy to take that. And I know no one's coming out of the military doing what I do because they don't want to take as much punishment as I went through. And I would never wish it on my worst enemy. <laughs> but it's hard. It's hard, right? It's not nice when people say nasty things against you, especially mm-hmm. when you, they're your mates. So, um, yeah, I did it to toughen myself up. And, uh, and that's why I've always used my own name. I never hide away from anything. Yeah, good man. Well, Tim, thank you ever so much for your, for your, your story, your experiences, your... Uh, moreover your humanity and and thank you for coming on the podcast oh it's great i really appreciate it anything else i can do for you let me know brilliant stay on the line while i say my goodbyes so our friends at home huge thanks as always for watching the bought the t-shirt podcast if you could like and subscribe uh, i'd appreciate it likewise if you consider supporting us on patreon and uh Big love to you and your families. See you next time. Thank you. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall.
Instagram, Chris.thrall. Thank you.